MappedCon is coming. National Pre-Med Day is no more. We now have rebranded National Pre-Med Day as MappedCon. And that is because National Pre-Med Day is bigger, it's better, and it's going to help you even more. Our MappedCon 2022 virtual conference, and I stress virtual, at least for 2022, is September 16th. Go to mappedcon.com, that's M-A-P-P-D, C-O-N, that's N as in November, dot com. Again, that's mappedcon.com to register for our free event on September 16th. If you can't make it live, you can get the replay all for free for that registration. And next year, MappedCon 2023 is going to be an in-person pre-health conference. We're super excited. I hope you are as well. That's going to be in Baltimore. You heard it here first. Awesome. We're ready for our next amazing session with some good friends. Hello, and welcome to the Premed Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Everybody's here. Yeah. All right. You doing a little intro, Scott? Yeah, I am. Right. Uh, glad to have everybody here. Uh, thank you uh, to our wonderful guests we have today. Uh, we want to welcome uh, Dr. Kelly Dorr, uh, who is uh, at Altus uh, Assessment and uh, is an expert on Casper and Duet and uh and, and other things that are going on and can really give us insight into, into that. We also have uh, with us today uh, Dr. Uh, Danny Dunleavy, and we're, we're really excited that you're here from the AMC uh, to address the, the issue of uh, preview, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, situational judgment uh, test from the AMC. And so welcome to, uh, to the two of you. Well, All thanks right. For, thanks for having us. So yeah, excited. Pleasure. Well, uh, Dr. Kelly Dorr, you and I go way back um, th- through thick and thin, uh, through the first couple years of National Pre-Med Day, now called MAPTCON. Um, so you've, you've talking about Casper, uh, um, Snapshot, Duet, previously, uh, Dr. Dana Dunleavy. I'm excited to have you on for the first time representing the AMC to talk about preview which is new to the arena of situational judgment tests for pre-med students. But this is not a, like, one day you woke up and you're like, I'm going to release preview. Talk about the, you guys have been working on this for a long time. Talk about the, the journey, this, this, uh, this brain idea that came out uh, of the AMC. Well, absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having us. We're really excited. I'm really excited to be here and talk to all of you about the preview exam today and hear the questions from the audience. Um, Ryan, you are right. This has been a project that has been a long time coming. Um, In fact, the preview exam started about a decade ago, um, way back, for those of you who remember, um, when the AMC was redesigning the MCAT exam. Mm. And back then, the committee that was redesigning the MCAT exam did uh, many conversations and surveys and focus groups and such with medical schools, and they realized there was a gap in the existing tools that are available for selection into medical school. And at the time, 
the gap was that there weren't um, tools that were designed to assess personal competencies that are important for success um, in medical school. Casper at the time was really, I think, not even um, a launched tool at that time. And so um, the AAMC looked around and we realized that there was a need to develop um, another type of assessment. And so over the last 10 years, we've been working with medical schools um, to develop and study the preview exam, the situational judgment test that is designed to measure core competencies for entering students um, and to give them an opportunity to showcase how they have a lot more to offer medical schools than that scientific knowledge. Yeah. And and that's always been a a big complaint, I think, among pre-med students is everyone only cares about my GPA, my MCAT score. But but I'm an amazing person. I have lots of empathy. I think I have uh, or will have good bedside manner when it comes to taking care of patients. And doesn't isn't that what really matters, Dr. Dorr? When it comes to Casper, how are you capturing that ability to show medical schools, look at me outside of my stats? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, sort of the, the key question here probably for a lot of the potential applicants as well is, what does this score mean and, and how does it impact, you know, and, and uh, be used with all the other tools that exist out there for, for med school programs? And so one of the things I want to highlight is that, and as the co-creator of Casper, I can say this, it is not a silver bullet. It is not meant to say everything about you as an applicant, <laughs> but what it is, is really meant to help. Uh, project a bit broader picture of who you are as an applicant to these schools. So the schools are going to use these tools in association with GPA, your MCAT scores to get that holistic picture of who you are. As, As Dana talked about, you know, there was this huge gap in what it is that we were trying to measure early on in the application process, especially for applicants. And, and, you know, that was, actually the impetus for creating Casper in the first place is that we didn't have that gap. We didn't have that understanding of who was likely to be successful. And so that's where with Casper, we're trying to ensure and the data shows that we can use that information to help schools understand both who might struggle in these areas of personal and professional attributes, but also on the higher end, who's going to excel, who's demonstrating that potential so that when they see the high Casper scores, in addition to your awesome GPA and your MCAT scores, what they know is that you're going to be holistically successful at medical school because it's not just about your grades um, as you go through. It's, it's about your bedside manner. It's about really serving the community, which is why we're all here in the first place. It's, it's making sure that we're actually serving our population. Yeah. So there's a, a big difference right off the bat between Preview and Casper. Dana, Preview is a kind of a multiple choice type uh, test where you're given a question and your your answer just to uh, the answer you're you're told to give an answer based on like uh, and I forget this specific language like least likely or most likely or most helpful least helpful um, kind of scale for each question. That's very different than Casper where you have kind of written responses and video responses now to an answer. What was the the thought process behind creating a situational judgment test that was kind of multiple choice? 
Yeah, this is this is a great question. It's one a lot of people ask us. I mean, I tell you, the answer is a little what we call um, it's a little in the weeds. It's a little <laughs> scientific in nature. So I'm going to try to keep it at a high level so I don't bore everybody. Um, but the basic idea um, is that, you know, this preview exam is designed to measure core competencies for entering medical students. And we know that uh, based on 50 years plus of research coming out of the employment literature, that there is a strong basis for situational judgment tests that use this exact format. So a format where you present a dilemma and the examinee is asked to think about the dilemma and identify how they would respond to um, to resolve the dilemma. And so the approach that we decided to take was really grounded on the fact that we had a lot of literature, a lot of prior practice um, indicating that this approach is successful. Um, it's a fair approach. It's what we call reliable and valid, meaning that um, the score is fair and it has consistent meaning across examinees. Um, and importantly, it allows us to really target in on what we're measuring. We really wanted to target in on examinees' knowledge of effective and ineffective behavior. And we didn't want to have any other um, information um, into enter into that measurement. And so we thought this approach would really allow us to zero in and get the best measurement of those core competencies for entering students. Yeah. One of the, uh, the big things with preview, again, having that kind of scale, ineffective and effective, uh, and the range in between, the the answer key, which was interesting that I learned when I went to the discussion at, at the advisors meeting, was that the answer key is kind of created from uh, attending physicians, faculty members, uh, people who are kind of in the space now. And, and I thought about that. And I was like, as a and and almost everything I try to do, I I try to put myself back in my pre med self, mm-hmm. and I I wonder how fair is it as a pre med student to be graded on something that like me in the future would say versus me now. This is a this is another good one. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna. If I don't answer your question, Ryan, just redirect me, okay? I will. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So we do a couple things to ensure that what you just said doesn't happen on the test. Mm. Um, We... We also agree with you. It wouldn't be fair to ask students to demonstrate knowledge that they haven't gained yet because they're not in medical school on this exam. So we take a couple steps to prevent that from happening. One thing that we do is when we're developing the content of the test, we have all of those items reviewed by medical school experts. So these are folks that are admissions officers, faculty, student and diversity affairs officers, and they look at all of the test questions and they verify that the knowledge that's needed to answer the question is appropriate for a pre-med, meaning you don't need to have um, experience in a healthcare setting or have started medical school in order to answer these questions correctly. Um, the other thing we do, and you already mentioned this, we have those or a similar group of folks uh, help us create the scoring key. And when those folks are creating the scoring key, they go through a pretty intense training and they have um, conversations with our experts as well as with each other. And during those conversations, they're really offering checks and balances against each other. And they're challenging each other about what that scoring key is to ensure that we don't inadvertently introduce knowledge about healthcare or knowledge that you gain in medical school when they're creating that key. Got it. Perfect. That That is the perfect answer. I, I, I appreciate right. it. Um, Dr. Dorr, the Casper 
very different kind of way that things are scored. You have a whole team of human reviewers looking at things. And again, the the way that the the answers are given is very different. It's not multiple choice. It's written out. It's it's video interviews now that you've interviewed introduced. Um, talk about the thought process behind that style of of answer system it obviously adds a lot of workload on on your part at on Altus's part to be able to score all of those exams what is the benefit of that and and doesn't that also introduce a lot of individual bias of all these people looking at these answers going oh, i don't agree with that that's wrong absolutely that's that's a great question ryan thank you um, so yeah, we, we definitely took something and, and approached it a little bit differently. That was the intent behind this. So when we were looking at the literature, one of the things that we noticed is that these complex professionalism dilemmas, there's lots of shades of gray in them, um, which means that Ryan, if you and I were looking at a scenario, we've gone through different life pathways, we, we've had different experiences, um, we're not going to answer that the same way. We shouldn't because we're going to all take our own approach. So rather than, you know, I, I think preview focuses on sort of the knowledge component, and this focuses on something slightly different um, and complementary, which is more, what do you, what would you do in that scenario? And why would you take that course of action? So when they see this complex professionalism scenario, what we know is that even when you put experts in the room, it's super hard to get them to agree on the single right answer. And so we took away that concept of having a single right answer that you had to nail in order to get a good score. That's, you know, what we tried to take away. And rather, we, with the open-ended responses, it allows people to bring their life experiences and pathways into understanding what they would do and why that take a course of action. So Ryan, you and I might end up at the same course of action, but we might do that for very different reasons. You know, maybe yours is more appropriate than mine, or, um, you know, maybe they're both appropriate, but we end up at slightly different endpoints and both of those are okay. So we do a lot of uh, vetting, just as Dana talked about with their scenarios, we do a very similar approach. Ours are more everyday scenarios. So they aren't developed necessarily by um, people within the healthcare system. We took that away mostly because we were trying to find a solution to personal statements. And with personal statements, you know, there can be a lot of bias that comes in if, for people who have knowledge of the healthcare system, et cetera. And so rather we took the approach of how do we create everyday scenarios that are relatable to everybody who's applying to medicine to remove that bias as we've talked about, um, and then provide a way for them to respond to it. Now, as you said, we're left with the complexity of rating these things, which is something we tackled very, very, very early on. And our solution was rather than to put these responses in front of a group of medical professionals, rather we would train raters who are representative of the population that all of you will one day serve when you become physicians. And they're meant to be able to evaluate the personal professional attributes of what you're responding to without taking into account, you know, knowledge of the healthcare system and things like that. It does require a lot of training and a lot of quality assurance, which we do to ensure that we're mitigating bias at every step along the way. And to answer your one other question, I'm sure many uh, listeners are familiar with the multiple mini interview uh, yes. or the MMI. Also your brainchild. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy so Canadians. The concept is very, you can see there's similar concepts here where we took the, the idea of multiple independent assessments where you have a rater per scenario 
so that you're not getting a, all of the bias in there. You're actually spreading it out across. So combined with training and combined with these multiple independent ratings, we've been able to show across both the Casper typed and AV that we're at very small or negligible levels of bias. You won't hear me say no bias because I don't think you can actually test that. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's a fair thing to ever say. And so we're able to get there, but we constantly do quality assurance on this. It's something that we're, we're looking at. The other nice thing I'll say about that is, and I just want to highlight this to your listeners, if you feel you came across a scenario and you don't feel like you knocked it out of the park, the good thing is that raider's never going to see you again. Uh, so it's a completely new raider, new person. Take a deep breath and take a fresh start on the next scenario. Same advice for the MMI, just yep. to highlight Sa that. Same exact advice. So in terms of scoring, um, uh, Kelly, I'll, I'll keep it at you for a second mm -hmm. and then we'll go to Dana. The, the way that the Casper is scored, would you say that, uh, the, the way that I talk about it is showing your work, right? For like elementary school math. Um, you, you may get the wrong answer, but you showed your work and you did a really good job showing your work. So you're going to get partial credit. How, how much is it about the answer versus the work to get to that answer? You know, I, I've, this is something I, a conversation I've had with lots of people and your why is really important, not just your, what you would do. Um, and so that ability to, you describe it as show your work. I talk about it as, you know, letting who you are actually come through mm -hmm. is, is very important because what we know is that, um, your, the scores for Casper are scored relative to your peers, right? So it's not if you're in the lowest uh, quartile of Casper's, not that you failed. You didn't, it is not a reflection of the number of scenarios you got right or wrong or anything like that. It's your performance relative to your peers. Mm. Um, and so it's part of what we want to encourage applicants to do is not only just talk about, you know, how I would respond in that scenario, but to actually unpack their thinking around that and talk about why that course of action is appropriate. Because what that allows you to do is show much more than just you know a single, this is what I would do. It allows you to really highlight your understanding of the complexity of these issues and the way that you're approaching them. Yeah. Uh, Dana, for for preview, it, it is a scaled answer uh, response. If someone doesn't nail the answer directly and they're they're off by a bubble or two on that scale, <laughs> is it is it a right or wrong, yes or no? Or is there like if you get it right, you get 100%. If you missed by a little bit, you get a little bit less. How does that scoring system work? Yeah, so the scoring system, as you mentioned, um, we do have this rating scale, and we score the exam based on the extent to which the applicant's rating of effectiveness aligns with the medical school educator's uh, ratings of effectiveness. So um, to the extent that you are closer to the medical educator's rating, the more credit that you receive um, on the preview exam. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's not an all or none. There There's a, a spectrum there potentially. Correct. And then for preview, uh, obviously, you've been working with medical schools, uh, helping them figure out how to best uh, use this data and what data would be most useful in communicating with them, the, the AAMC and the preview team. What is the communication in terms of here's how you should use preview in the admissions world? Is, is there set communication from the AAMC or do you leave that up to the, the schools? Oh, well, yeah. 
Um, so we leave a lot up to the schools, right? Like the, the AAMC can't mandate schools to do anything. Um, schools have their own processes and policies based on what's best given their school's mission and their own unique needs. Um, but what we do and what we think you know, is our responsibility um, is to provide guidance about appropriate use of the test. And so we provide um, a, a variety of guidance to the medical schools. So some of that takes the form of training where we would offer, say, a training session to their admissions committees. We also provide specific information for them about how to incorporate or what we think is the appropriate way to incorporate preview scores based on what we know from um, from the literature and from holistic review. So I'll give you a quick little primer on it. Um, what we suggest is, is much like Kelly said earlier, um, we really emphasize that the preview score is designed to measure examinee's knowledge of pre-professional um, competencies and what's important for success when they enter medical school, um, and that it's also not a silver bullet. It's intended to be used alongside of other information. We really do encourage them to triangulate information from the application and look at what they're learning from preview. Keep that in mind as they look at experiences, as they look at personal statements, and as they look at the interview. And we think that it's with all of that information together that they're going to get a more a clear and holistic picture of who the applicant is and what that applicant um, is prepared to learn in medical school and who they can develop into as a physician. Um, the other thing I would point out is that since this is a new test, um, it's only been uh, in use in medical school admissions. This is really the third year. We do talk to schools about how when there's a new assessment out there, you need to bear that in mind. Um, we've done 10 years of work on this test, and we have a lot of information about how it's related to success in medical school and why it's important, um, but it's still new at individual schools. And so they shouldn't put outsized weight on it when they're reviewing. Um, they should use it, again, in consideration with other tools, and they should use it really as a plus factor and use it to um, draw attention to folks that they might have otherwise overlooked and where they can see that there's someone who might have a different set of strengths that they wouldn't have seen before without this score. Yeah, love it. The the students that, that I see, they're on Reddit, Student Doctor Network, on in Facebook groups, wherever, uh, <laughs> wherever I see them. Uh, a lot of them, when they get their scores back, uh, historically it's been, I, I scored bottom quartile of Casper, and now it's like I scored really low percentile on on preview. Am I dead in the water here? What's going on? Uh, Kelly, I, I know you talk a lot about um, kind of the guidance that you give to medical schools, and it sounds like, Dana, very similar is it's a, a value add, not a anyone below this this threshold, you should just throw the throw out their applications. Talk about the, the guidance that, that you typically give uh, medical schools from from Altus. Yeah, I think that I, it's so important to understand that, you know, this is not meant to be a hurdle that's put in front of students as something that they must overcome. Unlike how many schools use GPA and MCAT, this isn't meant to be a cut or filter down of, you know, the lowest performers. In fact, those in the lowest quartile are still very eligible for interview and getting into medical school. You, you know, please understand that because it's a data point. So we encourage schools, you know, when they use that data point that, you know, there's there's may want to dig into other parts of your, your submission and your profile, getting to know you a little bit more. Very similarly, those who score in the high 
quartile. We want those to, you know, be used to bring in strong performers and maybe prioritize for interview or move them along further in the process. But really one of the things that we want to highlight is a low score or low quartile doesn't mean you failed. Um, it doesn't mean you're a horrible human being. Definitely, it doesn't mean that. And that you're very, very, very much still eligible for admission to medical schools, for interviews into medical schools, um, and to pursue your passion because it is one piece of data. And that's something that we try and highlight not just to applicants and to advisors, but to the schools themselves. So in addition to having, you know, sort of recommendations that we provide for them, we also have a research team that works one-on-one with these schools to help them really understand how to put all these pieces together in a way that serves their mission because at the end of the day you know that's the the thing that's most important and people can get overwhelmed by a single score and overly focused on that so just reinforcing those messages yeah from the pre-med perspective the casper preview mcat obviously casper preview being kind of the newest members of the application process it just seems like more and more and more uh both time commitment wise stress wise financial uh responsibility wise, do you see at some point, and I know Kelly asked you this recently, Dana, do you see at some point, like, is there a possibility that preview and Casper or some combination of that can get rid of other parts of an, of the application process, maybe letters of recommendations instead of very subjective uh, letters of recommendations from, from letter writers. We have these tools now with preview and Casper to go, here is the students. Uh, here are the students' competencies. Here's who this student is, versus uh, like well tested and and uh, um, researched methodology of testing these things. Versus Johnny is an amazing student, and I highly recommend him. Uh, like, do, do you see potentially like getting rid of of some parts of of an application process? This is a fantastic question. Um, the medical school community is talking about this as well. In fact, someone, uh, it was also talked about uh, by advisors at a recent conference I attended. I was in that session. Ah, that's That was a good right. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is a question that unfortunately I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it's a really hot topic amongst the community and the community really needs to give um, significant consideration to the admissions process of the future and making sure that it works well together to provide all the information that we need to know about students to identify folks who are prepared to learn in medical school and are prepared to grow into well-rounded doctors. Um, my hope is that um, we can do that and we can find tools that work really well together and are efficient so that we're not asking students to do more and more and more every year. Yeah. There are, uh, unfortunately, predatory test prep companies out there saying, hey, come come spend $5,000. We'll, we'll prepare you for a Casper. Uh, I'm sure they're coming from for preview if they haven't already. Um, Kelly, from, from your perspective, from Altus Assessment's perspective for Casper, do students need to prepare for Casper? Um, such a great question. Such a great question. I talked about this a lot in that same conference that we were all attending, obviously. Um, one of the things I, you know, and I find this such an interesting story is that uh, we've been working on Casper 
not to date myself too much, but for almost two decades. Um, and we launched it first in 2010. And right before it was launched for a single medical school in Canada, not that McMaster isn't just wonderful, but for a single medical school, there was a test prep company that popped up months before saying, we can tell you how to write Casper. And I thought, I can't tell somebody how to write Casper. And I created it, so I don't know how they're gonna do it. Um, and so the answer is, you know, unfortunately, there are the these test prep companies that exist out there. And we've done the data and we've dug into it. Um, and when we look at coaching, uh, like third party that you're paying for coaching versus things like our practice test that's it's free and accessible, coaching doesn't help you and in fact can sometimes hurt you. Mm when you're completing Casper. So in fact, we've seen no increase in scores with third-party coaching, which is really important from a leveling the playing field perspective. And in fact, some misinformation that's out there. So our answer is, and I hopefully said this about 30 times during the session to the pre-health advisors, and this is my biggest piece I wanna share is, what we did see helping people, and it was a small amount, but still, is the free practice test, becoming familiar with the test format that you can complete as many times as you want. Uh, you can go through, you can be familiar with the timing, you can be familiar with the scenarios and what they look like. And doing that is going to be your best advantage. We also make sure that um, there's a get ready email when you sign up for your Casper test that you get with all of the tips and suggestions, any data that we have, because uh, we get more and more every year where we understand things you can do differently. So spending the full five minutes responding, um, you know, being sure to re- request your accommodations if you need them, making sure you turn on closed captioning if that's what you want. That's something you can try during the practice test. Doing all these things to remove those test day jitters and become familiar with the format is actually what's gonna set you up for success. The third party um, coaching prep, in fact, doesn't help you in any way. The data says like none at all and could in fact hurt you. So we have a fully staffed applicant support team, email us, you know, reach out. There's a webinar on our uh, Take Altus page. Take advantage of, of the free things that are out there because our goal is to level the playing field um, and create a more accessible uh, assessment for everybody. Um, and I want to just plug, if you have feedback or suggestions, we take those ser- very seriously in your exit survey. Yes, they're Canadians. They're very friendly. Just just tell them. Um, Dana, I, I know the AAMC for preview does have a, a full-length uh, preview exam with an answer key. How, how easy is that for students to, to go get and take and uh, when, when should they think about doing that in their process? Yep. So um, we also have a lot of free resources that are available to help students prepare for the test. Um, it sounds like they may be similar to what Kelly just described. I would say we have two categories of resources. One is a set of resources that tell you what to expect on test day. Um, some students are really familiar with what it's like to take an online secure exam and others are not. And so from our perspective, it's really important for students to know what to expect that day so that they have a smooth test experience and they're feeling confident going into the test. So if they go to our website, the preview website, they can um, access a lot of free materials around how to how to be um, familiar with what to expect and how to prepare to interact in that um, online environment. So for example, um, you can look at um, all of our policies around test day, you can see the equipment requirements, you can even watch a video about what it's like to interact with an online proctor. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then the other type of resources we have are more along the lines of what you mentioned, Ryan. And so those are materials that help you prepare for the content of the test. So in that vein, we have some materials. We have a preparation guide that walks students through the steps that they might take mentally to get themselves ready. So thinking about our core competencies and those definitions, um, thinking and reflecting back on their prior experiences and how those may have informed their thinking and their development around those competencies. And as you mentioned, we also have that full length practice exam that has keys and rationale. And our advice there is to take it, score it, think about your rationale for why you selected a particular effectiveness rating and read about how that's similar or different um, than what the stated rationale is. Yeah. And if we think if, you know, if you're doing all of those things, we think you're setting yourself up for success on test day. Awesome. Uh, let's go ahead and open it up to some Q&A, see what some students have to ask about Casper and Preview. McKenna asks for Q&A later. Why do you think that some people score highly on Casper and low on preview and vice versa? I've seen this a lot um, where students are like, "Uh oh, I did well on one and not on the other. I mean, the most obvious potential for me is like one, you, you knew the right answer. Uh, and potentially that helps you with preview, but you couldn't explain why you had the right answer, which maybe meant that you did poorly on, on Casper. Dana, I'll throw this one out to you. Um, just, Obviously, without being a Casper expert, what what's potential thought process of why one would score well on one and not the other or vice versa? Well, you, read, you read my mind. That's what I was going to start with. We'll yeah. have to make sure we see what Kelly says on this one, too. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think the two tests measure different things. I think that um, the AAMC preview exam is really focused on knowledge of effective and ineffective behavior in those core competency areas. And we've chosen a methodology that allows us to really hone in on that. Um, and um, we'll hear from Kelly in a minute. But I think I think because of the difference in what's being measured in the format, it's not surprising that there are some differences in folks' test scores. Yeah. Kelly, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very similar to Dana, maybe not surprisingly. Um, the formats are different of the test, so you can't expect to score the same. Even though they're they're looking at similar things, um, it, it, they're not measuring exactly the same things. So I think one of the things, you know, and I just I'll go back to exactly what Dana and I said is looking through and practicing for the test that you are going to be writing, um, you know, and just making sure you're not. You know, you're thinking about, do I need to explain it when I'm writing on Casper, et cetera? I think there could be a lot of variety of different reasons. Fun research question, actually. Um, but just to highlight, you know, again, one is not necessarily a silver bullet. These are data points that go together. Um, and just to highlight, you know, if you end up in that lower quartile in Casper, that does not sink you. Um, you know, I'm not going to speak for the WMC because I don't I want to, but <laughs> for Altus, um, you know, just to remember that that doesn't sink you. And so thinking through and just using these as data points that put you together because we're encouraging medical schools to use these as data and to use them to pull in other information. So, um, you know, just to reinforce and support you as you because it can be confusing. Yeah. As you're looking through this. Awesome. All right, next question. And and just a, a fun tidbit, Pre why preview is capitalized P-R-E is because P-R-E is a, a, like an acronym inside of a word, professional readiness exam. Um, so just random knowledge out there. I don't know why. Um, K 
Cam one cast eleven. When is the optimal time to take? All right, so this is a great question. Um, uh, my general answer to this when students ask is it's kind of I, I kind of consider it part of the secondary application process almost. What what are your thoughts on on when the best time to take Casper, best time to take Preview, uh, in terms of when you can actually take it? And then I'm going to add on to this question. Um, how many times can you take it? How long is the the answer or the the test good for? Kelly, I'll you want to start? Yeah, yeah, I'll start. Um, so my encouragement and my advice is to take it as early as as possible for you and your schedule, because when you sign up for Casper, so if you sign up, you know, for the first test dates um, available early in the in the spring, then you may say, oh my goodness, something's happened in your life and you need to reschedule, which you can do. You just go on the site, reschedule. There's, uh, you know, it's a very easy process. And so it gives you that flexibility rather than delaying it when all of a sudden you can't take it because something has come up. You're not feeling well that day, something else in your life. So recommendation is always to plan earlier and take it earlier. Your score itself is good for that one application cycle year. And the rationale for that is your score relative to the other applicants that are applying. Um, but also the test evolves. You know, every year as we get data, we're trying to not only improve the, the test itself, but we're doing things that we think are actually beneficial to applicants. So, for example, we had great feedback from applicants that said, uh, I don't want, uh, I want closed captioning, but it used to be an accommodation we provided for the videos. Now it's accessible to everybody. So we want to make sure it's an apples to apples comparison for what we're doing. Um, and so that's why you take it once and only once, uh, and then it's good for that application cycle. But uh, taking it as early in the year as possible with, of course, the understanding that if your life is crazy and hectic at that point in time, think about your stress level overall mm -hmm. and when is the best time for you to take it. Yeah. Uh, and then Dana, time to take it. When when are students available to take it? And then how many times can you take it? It's like the MCAT where you take it up to seven times in a lifetime or whatever. Yep. Um, so my advice is similar around when to take. You know, I think that students should take the test when they're ready, when they feel like they're prepared. Um, but in general, taking it sooner in a given testing year makes sense for the preparation reasons that Kelly described. And also because um, medical schools often want to have um, scores earlier in their review process. And so if you're able to test in the spring or the early summer, your scores are more likely to be in front of their, their committee earlier. So those are two kind of practical reasons or practical things to think about when you're scheduling. Okay. Um, with the preview exam being a, a relatively new exam, we're still learning and developing some of our policies. So right now for this year, the policy is that you can test only once within a testing cycle. So right now, this is the 2022 testing year, and it runs from uh, June through October. You can only test once during that period. However, you can test year over year. So if you were to come back next year and... Um, you know, maybe this year you're just testing for fun. <laughs> Next year you actually apply. You can, it's up to you. And it's up to the medical schools to which you apply, whether or not they want you to retest or whether they would like to honor your scores from the prior year. Because we use that um, rating scale format that we've talked a lot about, we have an opportunity to um, 
um, report scores year over year. And the score means the same thing, whether you test in June of 22 or July of 2023. So um, that is, you know, another benefit of that approach. And it, we think that that helps students um, and gives them the choice as to whether they think they need to test again. Yeah, and that, that's a that's a good benefit. And Dana, I think you and I have different definitions of fun. If people are taking these tests for fun, <laughs> Dana and I are assessment people. We have a slightly skewed perspective of fun. Bunch of nerds. Um, <laughs> Deborah asks, "Where's the reliability and validity data published? Does predictive data exist on how scores correlate with particular outcomes, like patient satisfaction scores, or academic or clerkship?" clerkship success. I, I have said for a long time, right, the gold standard of, of all of this data, MCAT, GPA, uh, now preview Casper, it, in, in my mind is patient outcomes, right? If we're training physicians to, to get through medical school, to do well in residency, all this fun stuff, the gold standard should be to follow these people for a long time. That's really hard to do. Uh, and so I, I doubt we have any any good data that that shows patient outcomes in that way. But um, I'll throw it out to both of you. Where where is some of this data published that shows that Casper is good for medical schools to use? That Preview will be and and continues to grow um, in its validity to help medical schools pick the best students possible. Kelly, uh, why don't you go and start again? Sure, absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, if you go to takealtis.com, all the data is there. Um, it's done in a digestible way. There's lots of blogs and understanding. Um, if you ever want to dig deeper into that, not only can you attend our webinars that we host, because uh, there's researchers on there to ask lots of questions, but you can also email our applicant support team if you have questions on any of the specific data, which is really, really important. Um, when we look at the data, there's two factors that you mentioned. So you mentioned reliability and you mentioned validity. And they're separate but related things. So you have to have reliability Otherwise, you can't have validity. Um, and so reliability just for every because everybody wants a stats lesson, right? Um, in the afternoon on a Friday, I feel, don't we all? Um, reliability is your ability to consistently differentiate between applicants. So to tease apart the high and the low performers. Um, and when you're talking about high stakes test taking, which I would argue admissions is high stakes for applicants and programs. Um, you want it to be above that 0.7 threshold. Um, the Casper data shows on average, we're in that 0.85 to 0.9 range for reliability. So really important, we're hitting those high stakes levels that we want. When we talk about predictive validity, what's important to understand too, in addition to the complexity of the longevity of it, um, is, is a couple other things. So there's a lot of noise that happens because it's not just that you apply to medical school and then you're serving patients. There's a whole bunch that happens during your medical school training that is influential in how things do, but it also is influential in that schools measure different things. There's not as much consistency across schools when we're looking at it. However, we do have good data out of medical schools that when you use CASPER in addition to GPA and MCAT, CASPER adds in your ability to predict getting honors in clerkship, for example. CASPER above GPA and MCAT actually predicts for your ability to match successfully to residency. Casper, when you look at the data, uh, can decrease the, the use uh, or the implications of, of professionalism incidents and formal remediations um, going into residency. 
Canadian data, but I'm going to share it with you because it's one of my favorite studies. Canadian licensing exam, a little bit different than the USMLE, um, still a two-stage examination. We used to have something called the CLIO and Philo, which is the culture, communication, legal, uh, population health, organizational uh, components of the exam. When you do well on the CLIO and Philo components of the exam, it shows good professionalism out into practices rated by uh, patients and also good peer reviews. And what we saw is that CASPER over MMI, over GPA, and over MCAT predicted for performance on that component of the licensing exam. So again, that's the type of data that we're looking for to help us understand, A, you know, are we on target? Are we able to tease apart? That's our reliability. But our predictive validity evidence, and again, you know, it's, it's evidence that we're collecting over time to help us better and better understand not just how Casper is doing, and I think that's important, but how does Casper give you that holistic picture? So when you look at Casper, MCAT, and GPA, does that tell you more about somebody's success in medical school or residency than any one of those things alone? Because you're not just your MCAT when you go into residency. You're all of these things combined. That's the point of the holistic is that you're all of these things. Yeah. So you want to study how Casper adds to that. Yeah. And, and I, I love that because then it's it's potential actionable data for the medical school to say, we really love this student. And we know based on on all of this data that we're collecting from Casper, from preview, from wherever, that they're going to need a little bit more help when it comes to matching. And we're going to start working on that now. Uh, that's that's great data to have. Dana, uh, obviously, uh, preview being newer, uh, again, kind of in its third year now in use with medical schools. Um, data, is any data published to, at this point? And if it is, where where can students go find that? Yep. Um, so we all, because we're a new test, we don't have um, data f- in terms of operational use from the schools that are using it over the last couple of years. But what we do have is um, data from a study that was began in about 2017, where we worked with um, eight different medical schools and we followed their students throughout their four or five years of medical school. And we looked to see how preview scores predicted their performance in medical school. And what we learned from that study, similar to what Kelly just described, is that scores on the preview exam do in fact predict students' performance in medical school as rated by faculty who work with them closely. So we see, for example, that students who um, scored well on the preview exam were more likely to be judged by their supervising faculty as having demonstrated higher levels of cultural competence or higher levels of social skills, um, higher levels of teamwork, and so on. Um, Those studies continue as we continue to try to um, do those analyses as students have wrapped up their uh, fourth or fifth year of medical school. In addition to that work, we're working with the schools that began using Preview uh, over the last couple years, and we'll be following their students as they progress through medical school as well, and we'll be sharing those data. Um, In terms of where to find the results of the study I just mentioned, You can look at our website, of course. We have all of those results made available through PowerPoint and webinar recordings that are all posted there. Um, The other thing I wanted to point out is we use a comprehensive approach when we're trying to establish the validity case for our assessment. And here's my little stats tutorial for you as well. Um, Validity means that the test, we have evidence to show that the test measures what it purports to measure. And we can collect that evidence in a lot of different ways. 
One way we do that is by looking at how the scores on the test predict performance. Another way we do that is by looking to make sure that the content of the test is actually relevant to what is covered and what is important in medical school. And that's another way that we demonstrate the validity of the preview exam. We work with those medical school folks to look at all of that test content and to look at that key to um, verify that it's all relevant and critical uh, for success in medical school. Dr. Dana Dunleavy, Dr. Kelly Dore, thank you so much for joining us here at MAPTCon to share your thoughts on your uh, respective tests, preview and CASPER. Hopefully students understand the tests a little bit more, uh, that they aren't just torture chambers out there for pre-meds, that they actually are trying to do something to help the students uh, and help the medical schools pick the best applicants possible. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing everything that you all know. Thanks for having us and good luck everybody in your applications and as you're prepared. Thank you, everyone. Best wishes. All right. Now, as we move on with our MAPTCon day, we're running a little bit behind, but that was a great session and well worth going over. <sighs> Rachel Grubbs, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I think we need to have, I know we've had Kelly on the podcast before. I just think, definitely think we need to have Dana too. Yep. So many questions from the audience we just couldn't get to with our limited time. So yep. let's keep those friendships and those conversations going. Yeah. Awesome. I think we have another giveaway winner uh, to to announce. We have Ari Morifiz um, Gonzalez from the University of Portland to get another uh, set of the Premed Playbook series. Awesome. Awesome. We will email you uh, with uh, with some details. With that, I'm going to hand it off to Rachel Grubbs. I'm going to go take a break and I'm going to hand it off in the uh, the wonderful, capable hands of my mapped advisor team to answer lots of questions. Protein and water for Ryan. He'll see in a little bit. All right. You guys going to come join me? Let's see. We got Verania. Whoops. There we go. Okay, Courtney. Hello. Some, is someone introducing us? Oh, no, I'm introducing us. Okay. <laughs> that, that's why I didn't have one more person on air, because it's me. Uh, welcome, welcome. Uh, this is Ask Mapped. So some of you have been coming to Ask Map every week or many weeks for a long time. Some of you, this may be new. Once a week, typically Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern here on the same YouTube channel many of you are watching now. We do a live advising session. Map keeps growing, so we're up to five advisors now. So it's not always all five of us, but it's usually at least three of us. And this week, you've got me, Rachel Grubbs. Uh, there's a banner for me. Thank you. Um, I have been in test prep and pre-med advising for a little over 20 years now. I'm old. Um, <laughs> and uh, just you know, acquired a lot of information along the way. With me is Verinia Granham. Verinia is the uh, former assistant dean of pre-health and STEM advising at Hofstra University. And uh, how are you today, Verinia? I'm doing great. I kind of feel left out. I didn't get the memo on the red. I should have oh. checked in. Yeah, Courtney and I called each other this morning. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I bring this a is actually bound. orange. It just shows up oh. on camera red. <laughs> how are you, my friend? I'm great. Okay. And Courtney, last but not least. How's your audio now, friend? I think doing well. I put in my headphones. Yeah. Hopefully there's no feedback or anything. You know, yep. the joys of technology. It happens. 
So Courtney is our uh, newest MAPT advisor, but not at all new to admissions. She comes to us from Rural College of Osteopathic Medicine, former director of admissions there. So we've got folks on this team who've been doing test prep and private advising, who've been doing undergraduate education advising, who've been doing um, the actual admissions of med schools. Nice, well-rounded balance today. And as we head into this session, if you've been listening or watching today's speakers, we know you have lots of questions. We see them come pouring through the comments. We're answering as many as, I can, as we can, but a lot of the questions you guys have had haven't been immediately relevant to the question at hand or the topic at hand. So that's what this next little session is about. It's a free-for-all. Any pre-med, any pre-health, any pre-PA topic, we may not get to them all, but we'll get to as many as we can. So start typing in those questions. It's time to ask Mapped live Q and A with any topic. Woohoo! Woohoo! It's been a really good conference today too. It has really, really helpful. All right, who's Great. doing our comments? We have a question. I can grab one. Sure. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think this got asked from the last session, but we can answer it here. Suzanne asked, is there a list of medical schools that require CASPER and or preview? Yeah, the easiest way, Suzanne, to get them is to go to the CASPER and preview websites. You should be able to find that data um, on each individual school website. And typically, they talk about it as part of the secondary application. So when you get your secondaries and are given the data about doing your secondary prompts, they'll typically mention CASPER preview there as well. But the test sites themselves are um, are the easy place to look and see every single school in one place. Awesome. Right. Okay, Morgan asks, is it okay to take classes that are not prereqs at community college? Brinia, why don't you take this one? Sure. Uh, so Morgan, yes. So not prereqs, meaning not your pre-medical or pre-PA requirements, um, are, it's okay to take them at a community college. I think there's a perception, um, and unfortunately for some medical schools, the, re the reality where community college courses are, are sort of, I don't want to say looked down upon, they're considered not as rigorous, um, but not prereqs, uh, I don't think would really fall under that category. I think it's fine particularly if, you know, you're starting out and you want to just kind of complete some of those general education courses before moving into your more advanced courses and you want to take those at a community college. Maybe you started out at a community college and then you're transferring to a four-year school. Um, that's okay to do. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Any perspective on that, uh, Courtney, that you want to chime in with? No, I agree with what Verenia said. It's Prereqs you definitely want to take at a at a four year institution if at all possible, um, and other schools as long as you're not racking up I would say you know just a plethora of different universities but we do understand that you know due to location or finances or just timing that some classes may need to be taken at a community college and that would be okay but whenever possible for prereqs four year. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's see. Maria asks, could you please give more tips for international applicants with a U.S. bachelor's? Okay. I can start with this one. So, Maria, it can definitely be challenging um, to be um, 
to be an international applicant because the first thing to know is that not all U.S. med schools will accept international applicants. So you need to do your research. We talked um, much earlier in the day about the fact that there are aggregate places where you can see information about all the schools. So you can go to Choose DO Explorer for the uh, osteopathic schools. You can go to the MSAR, the medical school admissions requirement for uh, allopathic schools. And then you can go to the uh, Texas Health Education website for, for Texan schools. And you just have to check their policies um, because if they're not equipped to handle someone who is an international student, if that's not part of their policy, then there's there's just no point in applying. Um, I think the next big thing to keep in mind is that financially it can be a little bit more challenging because so many med school loans are federally funded here in the United States and you may or may not be eligible. It's great that you have a U.S. bachelor's because that's also something the med schools here in the States are sticklers about. So you've already surmounted that challenge. But now you'll kind of have to think about, are you funding this yourself? Are you funding it privately? Are you taking private loans, which often have higher interest rates than the federal public loans? So just some factors there. And then the final thing I'll add is, we are definitely pre-med experts here, but part of being an expert is admitting when you need to collaborate with peers. And there is a group that we like that actually were, was on MAPCON National Pre-Med Day last year called F1 Mentors. Now, they aren't really admissions experts, but they are residents and physicians and med students who are international. So you're still going to want to come to a resource like ours to get a lot of the admissions info. But if you're just kind of wanting more guidance about the lived experience of being an international student, F1 Mentors, you can Google them. They're fabulous. They do free mentoring for international applicants. So I would definitely check them out. Yeah, and I would add to that too, Maria, sorry, really quickly, just that you want to, just as we would tell a student from the U.S. that that your story matters. So be sure to share that in your application, talk about your path to medicine and what made you interested in medicine and what got you, what continues to motivate you to continue on this path. That's very important too. Yep. All right. Jimena, I love your name, Jimena. That's one of my favorite names. Uh, Jimena says, being from rural Montana, shadowing has become very difficult. What sorts of things can we do to supplement limited shadowing? We might have a banner for this, but there are lots and lots of virtual shadowing option options out there. And one of them is offered by Mapton Medical School Headquarters. It's at eshadowing.com. No hyphens or anything. So just the letter eshadowing.com. Um, what we have seen, and we talked to several admissions advisors about this over the last few years, um, is that while everyone agrees that virtual shadowing is not as good as in-person shadowing, in-person uh, virtual shadowing is better than nothing, right? So you're in a rural area, it's challenging. I encourage you to keep cold calling, keep looking for opportunities. Think think broadly, right? Don't just think hospitals, think hospices, nursing homes, private practices, um, you know, there's just lots and lots of places that you can be looking to shadow physicians. Um, but you can also go to eshadowing.com and sign up for some virtual shadowing, which is generally accepted as a supplement to in-person shadowing. Yep, yep, yep. Samantha asks, what would say, what would you say admissions look for? What makes a student stand out as an out-of-state resident besides having ties to the school or state? Uh, so Courtney, you want to just start off on this one? Sure. I would say 
thinking about kind of the purpose of the school, if they have a really strong mission or um, a specific population or um, kind of location with certain residents, having familiarity or past experience where you have interacted with people of similar populations. Uh, you know, I know that at my previous institution, we took usually about 90% of our students from out of state. And a lot of them were looking for experiences or to kind of grow their experience with working with underrepresented and underserved and in a border region. And so that was really helpful. So if you don't have specific ties to the school, I would say, yeah, look at their mission, look at the way that their curriculum is set up and the resources that they have available and see if you can kind of tie yourself to how they present the curriculum and your learning style and how you feel like you would benefit from that. And clubs and organizations, if you can tie yourself to those things that you want to be part of, I think that that's really helpful. Plus, it shows that you've done your research and you can, you know, let them know what kind of things you want to be involved in that they already have going and, and things like that. So there's a number of different ways to do that. Yep. And then uh, specifically with the out-of-state, you may know the Samantha, but just for anyone listening, uh, the thing with out-of-state typically plays a bigger role with public schools. So you can always research schools and see what their um, historical out-of-state percentages have been, or you know, maybe it won't show you every year, but it'll show you a recent year or a recent average. And that gives you an indication. Many public med schools are funded by the state and therefore expected to take a certain percentage of in-state candidates or matriculants, I should say, but it does vary. So for example, I live here in Columbus, Ohio. Ohio State is a great public med school. It's got a pretty high out-of-state um, percentage, as do our neighbors up north in Michigan, another um, it's blasphemy to say I like Michigan, but it's a fabulous med school, um, and they also have a high out-of-state. Um, so some of it is just sort of knowing those data points, and sometimes if we're simplifying, we just say beware of public out-of-state schools, but we don't mean don't apply. We mean know the odds, and then exactly to Courtney's point, have a reason, understand mm -hmm. the mission, um, because often those private schools are going to have higher out-of-state acceptances. Yeah. Esme, volunteering at a hospital considered sufficient for clinical experience. I help check in patients for surgery, escort to pre-op, help turn over rooms, so my time spent with the patient is limited. Verenia, you're nodding because you yep. know yep. I'm going to call on you. <laughs> Let's tell our friends about clinical versus not clinical. Absolutely. Uh, Esme, so volunteering at a hospital Um the location itself doesn't determine the clinical experience, just that by itself. It's, and this is what's key in your statement, how much time you're able to spend with patients. And you've already indicated that your time spent with the patient is very limited. So you're not engaged in, in some way or form in that in the care of that person. So you are checking in patients, you are escorting them, um, you're helping to turn over rooms. So you're getting very valuable experience around the healthcare setting, but patient care experience, actually taking care of the patient, taking care of their needs in some way, 
um, is really what defines your experience. So clinical experience equals direct patient care. Uh, the setting itself, uh, it's not, it doesn't matter. It's more so what you're doing with the patient. Probably, yeah. And they probably doubled it, so they have it, folks. Excellent. So that would be 400x last year's revenue, but you would look at the run rate. So what happened last month? Megan says, if my school offers a letter of recommendation packet, but I don't pursue it, will that look bad to an admissions team? What if I have strong, independent letters of rec? Courtney Lewis, what are your thoughts on this? I would say sometimes that's a bit subjective, um, you know, depending on the rest of your application and things like that. But I think if you want to put together an independent letters of recommendation packet, that won't be frowned upon. Um, we definitely know which schools have, you know, certain requirements for their committee packets that they put together. And so we may be aware of that and have some questions to that. But I don't think it's going to rule you out completely because there's any number of reasons why somebody couldn't get a committee letter. Sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's being out of school for a certain amount of time or not having your MCAT score in time to be able to interview with the committee. So we're, we're a bit flexible on that. And we do understand there are nuances that go into that. Yep. Uh, I, I have seen cases, you mentioned here, Megan, not pursuing it. I've definitely seen cases where um, schools that do packets or committee letters have standards that you have to meet in order to get the packet. Um, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I'd love to have some debates with some advisors from schools who are doing it to get a better handle on their perspective and also maybe with some admissions officers. I think it simplifies things for the admissions committee, but personally, I get nervous about the idea that anyone can tell you no before you get to the med school saying yes or no. Um, but yeah, that, so sometimes it's by choice and sometimes, you know, they said you have to have already been here for a certain number of credits and have a certain GPA and maybe you were a transfer student and you just didn't hit the thing. So yeah, it's it, ultimately it's your choice. Yeah. Iris says, do prereqs expire past a certain time? I was told by an admissions committee member they do, but on MSAR they don't. Help. <laughs> Yeah, tricky question. This is a common, common, uh, I would say myth, but we can get into a little bit of why it's a myth. Vernia, you want to chime yeah. in here? Sure. Yeah, I think it's one of those it depends questions, right? So it depends on how old the classes may be because medical schools may want to see more recent academic work just to show that you have um retain some of that content and are able to still kind of show academic progress. Do they expire? Um, I think it will depend on each school. I have seen some, some schools indicate that they prefer to have courses taken within a certain time frame. Um, but I can't say for sure if they're absolutely going to tell you, no, these are too old, you have to retake them. So really it, it, it depends on that particular medical school. And I know it's, tough. It's frustrating that you were told two different things by the commission uh, admit, uh, admission committee member and the MSAR. Um, go based on the MSAR. Um, but again, if it's been a significant amount of time, you kind of need to show more uh, recent coursework, then that may be what you need to do. It may also matter too if you have to take the MCAT, for instance, and if you need to re retake some classes to brush up on the content for that, um, mm -hmm. that might be a factor as well. 
Yeah. Um, what I was thinking about is, although there are maybe some schools, as you said, out there that have prereqs expire, it's more often that they want to see recent coursework. Mm-hmm. And Courtney, you want to speak a little bit to that as you've been very recently picking future physicians. Why does recent coursework matter? Yeah, it's we're, we're putting you into 32 plus hours of heavy science coursework and asking you to balance your own mental, physical, spiritual well-being, research, volunteering, being a participant in clubs and organizations. So anything that would kind of give us a bit of a preview on how you are as a student right now is helpful. So knowing that you can handle upper division and or recent coursework is is helpful for us in that way. So that's why we like to see recent. It's one of the major reasons, I would say. Mm-hmm. Can you handle the rigor? Are your study skills current? Mm-hmm. All right. What else we got? Allison says, would you say during application, they understand that some students had unforeseen circumstances handled during undergrad, like health issues that led to a lower GPA? Uh, I'm going to start with our classic, it depends. And I also think this is a great opportunity to show MapDAP. So, uh, Verenia, why don't you start talking about GPA trends a little bit and uh, dips in grades, and I'll see if I can get mapped up on the screen. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what what matters, um, of course, having a strong GPA and all of that is important, but what matters even more is what's the story behind that GPA? What were those trends? Were you, did you start off really, really strongly in your first years of college and then sort of dipped and then continued that, that downward trend? Or did you start out a little lower and then sort of built your way up and really really knocked it out of the ballpark by the time you got to your application year. Um, That tells a story, you know, what was going on during that time. Um, And that is something that you can potentially give context to in your application, whether it's through your personal statement or maybe through a secondary application. But, But the trends are the important thing. Did you, as I said, continue, did you start off um, really strong and dipped. What does that show to medical schools? Did the course did the courses get harder, um, and you sort of struggled and couldn't really keep up with them, or the opposite? Maybe you had a rough start and made your way up, and that's something that um, Mapped app can help um, help you visualize. Uh, Rachel, if you want to kind of go over sure. how this works. Yeah, so I definitely encourage everybody who is watching to create a mapped out account. Um, We've been told our website is not as clear as it could be. So we're taking that feedback and trying to make it better. Mapped app is free forever. Uh, There's no like secret gotcha moment where we suddenly require a credit card if you're only using mapped app. Now there is a mapped app pro, which is a paid level of it. But right now, about 90% of our features are in mapped app in the free level. We are going to be building more things over time. And some of those things will take some extra funds and will have to be in the paid level. But there is a holy host of great stuff available for free. And the thing that we hear from you guys, you, you people who are using mapped app over and over is the thing you love is the GPA calculator. And I have to believe a lot of that is about the graphs because you can always Google a spreadsheet and calculate your GPA through a spreadsheet online. There are tons of those. But if you're looking to see some of the ways med schools will analyze your GPA, then the mapped app is the way to do that. So if you're looking here at this chart that I'm showing you, this student has entered 
all of their grades and they've got for AMCAS a cumulative 3.19. Now we calculate for all three services. So just to show you, I could switch over to a Comus. It's actually also a 3.19. Sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's different. And Texas is a little different. It's 3.23. Texas, I mean, all the applications have tiny little ways that they measure, but Texas doesn't do minuses or pluses. So this person might've had a couple A minuses or something, and that's why they got just a tick higher for Texas. But the key thing you're looking at here is this green line. You can see it goes up, down, big dip happened in 2018, back up, that's great, but then started to dip again. A common question is, I have a 3.2 GPA, am I going to be able to get into med school? And the answer is, it depends. Now, if you were this student, this demo account that I've created, if this were a real-life person, what I would be telling them is, hey, I still think you have a chance, but your grades have been dipping back down over the last few terms and we need to stop that habit and fix it, right? So if it was just a dip down and then everything went back up and stayed up, that would look to me like, um, like our question asker said, unforeseen circumstances, you know, grandma passed away or mom needed help or I got pneumonia, you know, something happened and then you got better and you, you righted yourself. But if you're going up and down all the time or if you're trending down now, and I don't mean I went from a 3.9 to a 3.85, that's not a trend down. So that's just mm-hmm. great GPA. But if you were at a 3.5 and you trended down to a 3.2, well, now I'm starting to worry for you a little. So and it goes back to what Courtney was just saying about the rigor of med school. So I encourage everybody to create a mapped up account, put all of your courses in there. And it will show you not just your GPA, the way med schools will show it, but also what your trends look like. And then there's some more detailed charts on the second GPA page. The one I really love is uh, class standing signs GPA, because sometimes people will try to boost their grades with things like a master's in public health or a fun minor. And, you know, take those things if they interest you. But if you want to prove to med schools, you can handle the rigor of med school you want to be taking rigorous upper level science courses. So that's a little about mapped up. I'll bring our faces back. Salama. Do PA schools count the GPA calculated by CASPA or the GPA that is on your transcript? I have taken eight of 10 prerequisite classes at my four year uni and the remaining two classes at community college. Excellent question. And I really loved you asked that, that you asked this dilemma because I was just showing a pre-med example, but we do have pre-PA mapped and we'll calculate the CASPA GPA for you. Now with PA, it's a little tricky because CASPA is the common app, but it isn't the exclusive app. So there are some PA schools that don't go through CASPA. So you should always check their policies. But generally speaking, almost every PA school in America is going to look at every college level course you've ever taken, um, whether at a four year or a community. Jacob says, can you write a story for shadowing on the AMCAS application expressing what you value in a physician in addition to listing your hours? Ooh, what do you think about that, Verenia? That's a great question. You're limited in the amount of space that you have, right? In the AMCAS application, you have 700 characters. So you have, you know, you want to be able to um, use your activity spaces wisely. Um, And yes, we recommend that you list shadowing experiences. And depending on how many you have, you could potentially write a very short um, 
summary or blurb to talk about what you learned, what you observed, how it impacted you. Um, it's not necessary because they sort of know what shadowing is, you're observing, you're learning. Um, but I've always encouraged students, you know, to if you have the space and you really were impacted by something that you saw while shadowing to go ahead and write a, a short summary about it or a short blurb. Courtney, anything you wanna add there or wanna get in a fight and debate her? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope. And it's it's similar for ACOMIS whenever mm -hmm. you're entering things there, except with ACOMIS, you can write about more experiences, but the length is going to be similar. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the one thing I'll push back on, and Jacob, I'm just taking you very literally here, as you said, expressing what you value in a physician. I'm not reading activities, essays to learn about what you think of other people. I want to learn about you. So if you're kind of saying, you know, this inspired me and I want to emulate this person, that's great. But uh, the personal statement is why medicine and the activities are all about applicant, right? Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure it comes back to you. And so it doesn't, you know, not all your activities have to be med related, but they should all be about you and not about other people. Great point. That's a very good point. Malay says, I've been out of school for some years. I didn't establish relationships with my professors. While I'm considering going back to school, I have no letter of rec writers. What would you all recommend I do to get LORs? I love that you asked this question. I've seen it today in the chat from many different people in many different forms. And ooh, I wish I had a time machine for you all. Um, so for anyone who's an undergrad, um, because this is a common issue that happens to a lot of people. So we're going to answer the question. But before we do, if you are an undergrad, make friends with your professors now. Tell them you're going to be applying to med school in a few years. Ask them, hey, going to be applying to med school in a few years, and I would love if you would be willing to write me a recommendation. It's several years off. Can I just keep in touch with you a little bit? And then send them friendly two-line emails once a semester. Um, make Avoid this problem. But so for those of you who are in the problem, Courtney, what do you think they should do? Well, I would try to reestablish that connection, right? Reach out to them, email them, see, you know, one, if they would be willing to write you a letter if you, you know, establish that contact and that rapport again, and two, what they would need to be able to do that. So it's going to take some additional legwork on your part, uh, but it's not a completely unviable option at this point. The other option would be, you know, if you qualify as a non-traditional student, some schools will allow you to use different letters of recommendation, say from your supervisor at your places of employment to qualify for science if you've been out for a certain number of years. So you can also check that route. Great. What's next? Alexandria, research experience is difficult for me to get as a non-trad. Often I get rejected at positions I apply for given how competitive they are. What are the thoughts on applying without research? Whew, I love this question because my thoughts are it is no big deal. Yeah. It's totally Do it. fine. Do, Do it. it. <laughs> I was research not required. Nope. Jason McKenzie says, does a good graduate GPA make up for a bad undergraduate GPA? Are we going to all just go? 
we talked about trends a little bit. I talked about them a lot. So someone else talk about trends. Talk about grad versus undergrad. Who wants to grab that? Sure. So, Jason, I mean, it, it, no. Will it make up for a bad undergraduate GPA? The short answer is no. Um, you still, it's good that you've shown that you can um, pursue a graduate degree and, and do really well in those courses. It'll enhance your application. But you still have to go back and look at those prereqs that, um, I'm as, well, let me take a step back because I was going to say go back and look at those prereqs, but we don't know if he's taking the prereqs, if Jason is taking the prereqs, or if this is an undergrad GPA and a completely different uh, degree program that where you haven't taken the, the prereqs. So if you've taken prereqs and you performed poorly, you still have to consider going maybe going back to school, retaking some of those prereqs. If you've never taken them and you've just performed poorly in your undergrad in a completely different major, that's still an opportunity to go back to school. Maybe think about doing a post-bac to establish a solid uh, undergraduate GPA trend. And, and I don't know, maybe Courtney, if you have more insight as well. Well, not all graduate programs are created the same and they can mm -hmm. score very differently. And so I would say I would agree that no, it's not going to completely make up for it, but you do want to perform well. It's going to be your most recent coursework. It is at a graduate level, so we do weigh it, um, and we want to see that it's strong. So I would say you definitely need to have uh, good performance in your graduate work, but it won't completely remove your undergraduate. Yep. All right. Got consensus all around there. Masu says, thoughts on getting online certificates from Ivy schools, uh, i.e. healthcare leadership stats, biostats. Do medical schools take these into account? Um, well, I think, first of all, it's going to be very similar to some of the answers we've given, right? So online certificates are all often graduate level work, but then just like we said, graduate courses vary. I would personally be wary of name brand online certificates. Now I say that having one, but I also know darn well that my online certificate from my name brand Ivy League school was not as, uh, the admissions were not as rigorous. It was a completely different admissions path than their formal MBA program, right? I just wanted to learn more about data analytics and I was busy. So I took some online certificate courses and it was really cool. I learned a lot, but I know darn well. And I think everyone in education knows darn well that mostly what I contributed to applying was the tuition. So yeah. if you're doing it to learn, great. But those ones that are easy to get into, they know they're easy to get into. So don't don't think the name is going to fool someone. Right. Yeah. Definitely. How would you approach motherhood on applications? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, as the resident. Yeah, go ahead. Start Sorry, it. Start was, resident mother. As the resident <laughs> as the resident mother uh in, in, in an advising role, uh embrace it. It's part of who you are. Absolutely. If appropriately, right? If it fits into your story, if it's something that you wanna um if it kind of inspired you on this path or if it has something to do with your path to medicine, absolutely it is who you are. There's no reason to hide it. There's no way to get around it. They will be with you. Children will, will be with you in medical school. And if you're not in medical school, right? Um, so it's a, it's a more stressful way to kind of have to go through this process, of course. 
Um, but but 100%, it is, they are a part of you. So there's no reason why you shouldn't, um, why they shouldn't be a part of your application. Jody says, I am a non-trad with no advisor and I will not be able to do a committee letter. So how do I get around that? I have so much work experience and I have been offered many rec letters. Yeah, so Jody, we spoke about this a little bit before. You don't have to do a committee letter. You can do individual letters. So, um, you know, I'm not sure where you are in your process, but if you're starting to get to the point where you have a tentative school list, start looking at those schools to see what kinds of letters they require. Um, most of them will say, here's a list of what we want or committee letter, right? So it might be one school says two science professors and one non-science professor. Another school might say two science professors and one work supervisor. Um, they do typically want some academics, but, but committee letters are a plus, but they can be required because actually only, I mean, not only, but mostly only schools on the East Coast of, of the U.S. even do them. Like that's not, it's not very common from you know, roughly Ohio West. So most people are not applying with a committee letter. Malvina, are international shadowing and or volunteer activities accepted? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> One thing about shadowing is, um, you know, clinical is kind of clinical anywhere you go, as long as you're adhering to like local laws, um, because patient care is patient care. But shadowing internationally might look very different because physicians have such an, like the way we do healthcare in America is very different than many other countries in the world. So I would still recommend trying to get some U.S. shadowing as well, but you can definitely count your international shadowing. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if this is Yorixi or Yorihi. I'm sorry. I hope you can teach me how to say your name. Um, are medical schools accepting online prerequisite courses now that more schools are going back to in-person teaching? Biochem or stats, for example. Courtney, you want to field this one? Sure. Uh, again, it depends. Uh, some schools will want to see the in-person. I would say, especially for prereq courses, you're going to want to opt to do in-person whenever possible, especially if it includes a lab. So I would always gravitate towards doing the in-person. Some schools may accept online prereqs, but it's not going to be the ideal choice, I would say. So even if it's accepted, it may not be the best thing um, for you to learn the material and for the admissions committee uh, to feel very strongly about how the course went. Also, these are kind of your bread and butter for getting letters of recommendation. So if you have an online course and you're going to need a letter out of it, if it's one of your science prereqs, just be very thoughtful about that. The interactions are going to be different. Maybe the strength of the letter is going to be affected by that. So take it into consideration if you're considering online prereqs. Great. Thank you for that. All right, it's 412. We've got time for one more. Sure. Hmm. Let me, okay. There we go. Madeline, when adding experiences to an application, what is the best way to group them? 
For example, should all shadowing be one experience, all clinical volunteering under one, et cetera, or separated? So Ryan Gray is currently backstage, but if he were on stage here with us, he would say, there are no rules in admissions. There are no rules. (laughs) Hey, there he is. You can just stay, Ryan. I mean, you're coming back on air in like a minute. Um, so there are no rules. You can do whatever you want. I love this question, Madeline, because particularly for AMCAS, where there's only 15 spaces, you may need to do some grouping in order to to fit all your activities in. You know, some people have eight or 10 activities and they have room to spare. That's okay. Some people have 30 activities and they're trying to figure out how to strategically group them. And exactly what you said Often that is putting all of shadowing in one because there usually aren't stories to tell about shadowing. And then with everything else, I would say it's less about type and hours and more about what it meant to you because uh, most admissions people are less fixated on how many activities did they list and how substantial and meaningful is the essay. So if you did a lot of drib drab volunteering that wasn't meaningful to you, I mean, it was fun maybe, but you just didn't get a ton out of it then you might want to collapse that. Where if you had a volunteering experience that meant a ton to you and you have a lot to say about it, you may want that in its own activity so you can write a full essay about it. And I, I would pop in just for the DL route using a Comus. This is a bit where we differ in the application itself. You can enter a lot of experiences. And so I would always encourage Uh, applicants, if you've done it, give yourself credit for it, right? You spent those hours, it took away time from studying, from your classwork, from doing other things. And so give yourself the best advantage there. Also, you don't know what a particular school is looking for. Sometimes they like seeing leadership in your extracurriculars or promotions through your jobs or international travel. And so if you've done any of those things, spend the time to actually make the entry for it get the information that you need. Sometimes it takes a bit more time to do, but if you're a well-rounded candidate and you have all of these different things from freshman year on, you definitely want to show that. It gives us a much better view of what you've done, how involved you've been, and kind of the, the breadth and depth of everything. So I would encourage you to make all of the entries that are accurate that you can. Great. Thank you for that clarification. So uh, it's 4.15. I want to help us get back on time. So we'll stop there. Um, reminder, this has been a special edition of Ask Map, but we do Ask Map every single Wednesday or I don't know, 50 Wednesdays a year, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Map YouTube. And then most Fridays, there's also a live Q&A with Ryan on his Instagram channel. So keep coming back. Keep asking questions. We are here to help. And we're going to let folks pop on to transition to the next session now. Bye, everyone. Yeehaw! Thanks, Tim. I'm so excited. Uh, Who's doing some intros? Do we know? Who's doing doing intros? Hello, Dr. Scott Wright. That would be me. You scared me. Who are you? Who? Who? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Too much fun. Too much fun. Yeah, right. Well, I agree. I'm excited. I'm excited for what's next. I'm excited to be back. <sighs> they forced me to leave, and now I'm back. Can't get rid back. of me again. You're back. Good. So we do have some medical students with us for a medical school panel. 
Isn't that exciting? It is very excited. Yeah. Exciting. I, th- <laughs> I think we do. Should we bring him on? Let's do it. All right. Let's see. Here we have Uno and Dos. And we have one more, I think. We do. Think, Where'd he go? Think, he left. I, yeah, he was on there. And then maybe that's him. He's back. He's there back. we go. Let's see. There we go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let me introduce these fine uh, young people here, and uh, and then we'll get we'll get going on our panel. So we have four medical students, one from each year. Uh, our first one, our MS one, is uh, Stephen Odaf. Is Odafe? Is that right? Is that is that the right pronunciation? Yeah, that's close enough. Close enough. Okay. Uh, Stephen, you are a uh, uh, first year at the uh, uh, Uniformed Services uh, Medical School in uh, Maryland. And so welcome to you uh, here. We also have Sarah Bradley, who is a a second year medical student at the Medical University of South Carolina. Hello, 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 Sarah. Then we have Luke Hendricks, who is here in the great Lone Star state of Texas, who is a third-year medical student at Long School of Medicine in San Antonio. And then uh, rounding out, our, our uh, fourth-year medical student is Eunice uh, and uh, Taken. Is that correct, Eunice Taken? Good, good, got it right. Fourth-year medical student at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So welcome to all of you, and I will turn it over to you now, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Scott. So I'm excited. Uh, I love the med student panels because I once was one of you at one point a long, long time ago. I want to start uh, with Steven, our first year student here. Um, Number one, because I want to check your audio. Might there there may be something a little off there, but hopefully we'll we'll get through the session. you're at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences, also known as USIS or USHUS, depending on uh, how you want to pronounce it. Um, you're, you're the baby of the group. What, what has this transition from undergrad or pre-med school life to med school been like for you? I think in, in one, it's been super hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, your your audio is not good, Stephen. Um, I, I had a feeling it's super, super choppy. So I don't know if you can restart the computer or um, jump on another device real quick. Phones phones work with this platform, I'm pretty sure. And we'll we'll get you back on. We 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 won't end without you. Leave no man behind, as they say. Uh, <laughs> I think I think that's the thing, um, <laughs> Sarah. Let's let's go to you, uh, MS two of the group. You're at Musk. Um, you you made it through first year. You've transitioned into second year now. What are the differences for you? Is it just more of the same? Yeah, I would say the biggest difference is it never gets easier. A lot of people warn me about that. Uh, you just kind of get used to it. And I think I'm finally maybe getting used to it. Uh, The biggest differences I would say uh, in second year is a stronger focus on things outside of just coursework. A lot of us have started doing research, getting involved in more leadership positions. 
those two would be the biggest so far, but I'm, I'm happy to be out of first year. I won't lie. <laughs> the final push through preclinical uh, is looking, looking good, hopefully getting to the other side soon. Yeah. What, it, what is the biggest uh, uh, survival uh, tip that you could give students going, going through first year? Have a strong support system within your class. Get close with your class as much as possible. You are, we always joke, it's trauma bonding. It's really not that bad, but get close with your class. I personally live alone because that's how I work best, but I go out of my way to go and study on campus so I could be around people as much as possible, which really helps me. And a steady workout routine will save you. Exercise is incredible. Uh, We live in a great city in Charleston where uh, we have great weather kind of year round. So a lot of us go on walks like daily, sometimes multiple times a day. You know, people joke about hot girl, like mental health walks. It's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mental health walks. Did you hear that, Luke? Hot girl mental health walks. I hope you are doing them. Uh, Luke Hendricks, you are a third year medical student um, at Long School of Medicine. The the transition for you going from preclinical years to now into your clinical years, how has that transition been for you? Uh, it's been good. So I've done two rotations now. I've done family medicine and psychiatry. Um, I did family a little early. And so I've actually been on a six week uh, break between rotations. And so um, I've been going into the uh, orthopedic call room and helping out with some uh, with some trauma cases and stuff like that. So it's been really good, like getting getting out of the books uh, and just like kind of uh, getting my getting my hands dirty, you know, uh, so to speak. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, you still have to learn, of course, um, and you still, you know, do a bunch of like you world and Amboss questions and stuff like that. But it's, it's, uh, I like it a lot more because, you know, you have these clinical experiences that you can kind of refer back to when you're, when you're going through questions and like, oh, I've seen that before. So it's mm-hmm. like, makes it a little bit easier to remember. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting and you definitely don't necessarily feel prepared for it. Um, you know, when you're, when you're first starting your clinical rotations, you you don't necessarily feel like, you know, what you're doing, but, um, you know, over time, as you, as you get more experience, you, you feel a little bit more comfortable and you kind of just have to, um, you know, put yourself out there and, and, and give it your best shot. And and eventually things kind of start happening. Yeah. uh, What, what does your schedule look like? So right now, um, I'm just, I've been going in at night. So I've been going in around, seven, anywhere between seven and nine and staying anywhere between 12 and six, uh, in the morning. And so I just go in overnights and then during the day, uh, after I wake up, I, I work on research and keep up with, uh, Anki cards and stuff like that. So, um, still, still very busy. I, I say that I have a six week break, but really it's, uh, as busy, if not more busy than when I'm in a rotation. Cause at least in the rotation, you have a set time where you're going to clinic and then the rest of the time you study and then you have weekends off. Yeah, Weekends are like the most busy days for, for orthopedics. And so um, that's when I've been going in. So it's been been pretty busy, but but I, I've been, been enjoying myself quite a bit. So. Yeah, interesting. All right, Stephen, we got you back. How's the audio? We good? 
Hey, do I sound better now? Yeah, you sound good now. <laughs> we're we're yeah. there. So this transition for you from from non medical student to now first year medical student, what has that been like? Many many call it uh, a, a fire hose of knowledge coming at you. Can do you agree? Do you disagree? What's going on there? Um. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree. I think I think it's been hard. Firstly, because regardless of what happens in your personal life from moving from one city to another, you still have to wake up and do your five lectures and relearn the amino acids that you tried so hard to forget after the MCAT. Um, Surprise, (laughs) they're back. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, um, it's not the most difficult content, but it's a lot and that's a lot to balance. And that's been what I've been doing for the most part or trying to do. Yeah. And so you you're a little bit unique being at the the military medical school, as it's kind of uh, known in layman's terms. Um, What what difference do you think you have compared to other first year students out there? Um, There's definitely the big the big part where I put on a uniform um, and I'm an officer in the military and the army specifically. I think I think the main difference for me is the the big emphasis on what we call TC3 or military and emergency medicine. So it's an addition to everything. Mm. And pretty much it's like what we're, what we're trained for is not just to be a physician, but to be a physician for, for the soldiers that we treat. And that's, that looks very different from the civilian population. Um, austere environments is a big thing that comes up a lot when you're interviewing for the school or you're in the school. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big difference. Everything else seems pretty much the same. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> it's it's fun, but it's a lot. As you mentioned, right? It's it's not as deep as your undergraduate classes, but it's just right. a lot, a lot. Right. Uh well, thanks thanks for uh working out the tech issues. We'll we'll have a lot more questions for you. Jonas, as uh we come to you, uh, you're the fourth year of the group. Applications to residency are open now. Um, what is fourth year like for you? Are you just chilling? Wait, just working on essays? What What does that look like? Hi, um, pleasure to be here. I was wondering if you guys can hear me. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, my fourth year is actually a bit difficult. So luckily I got all my essays done and finished uh, about a month and a half ago. Um, but I'm doing audition rotations. So I'll be, I'm going from a uh, rotation site, like different hospitals, different programs each month and I'm doing five back, back. So it is a hectic. I'm living out of my car pretty much, but I'm staying at Airbnbs and uh, I don't have Wi-Fi, so I'm at a cafe. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. What? So, so um, uh, Luke talked a little bit about his life as a third year student um, you as a fourth year, I think a lot of people uh, think about fourth year. I mean, I, I, I think about fourth year is it's a lot of extra sitting around, a lot of extra. I mean, you're doing rotations and stuff, but you're really focused on trying to match into your residency of your dreams. Um, as you are looking at your audition rotations and everything going on, do you think it's really just more of third year that kind of schedule wise and and what you're working on obviously on on top of the the heiress application so i think it's a little different uh third year seems to be a bit more uh scheduled uh like you'll go from rotation to rotation um and you have like a set 
schedule, but for me, uh, so I'm applying general surgery. Um, whenever my preceptor's on call, I'm on call. When they're not on call, I'm still on call because the residents are on call. So it's the schedule is just really hectic. And but the the upside of that is I don't have to be doing U World and Anki and Amboss uh, like I did third year. Yeah. Uh, and I'm happy I finished my applications a bit earlier. So I'm kind of when I'm not at work. Uh, kind of just hanging out <laughs> yeah so yeah the sitting around thing it's either you're going a hundred percent or zero percent yeah so are, are you're you're done with step two at this point or, or level two yeah so i took both uh, okay. step two and level two okay uh, just uh it helps to be a bit more competitive applicant yeah programs yeah Don't look at a uh, level two uh, they'll look at them but I'd rather have a step four. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, coming back to you as the second year student, um, step two or step one rather is now pass fail. Some medical schools are doing weird things with, with the step exams, like combining step one and step two together saying, Hey, just take them at the same time or getting rid of dedicated time for step one and potentially facing ramifications of students failing step one because they, they didn't, keep uh uh the respect for it up enough what what is your school doing in terms of of dedicated time for step one studying what are you hearing from other students around the country that are uh, second year students yeah i have actually heard a lot of what you're saying about them almost completely getting rid of dedicated i've heard things such as 15 days of dedicated time (laughs) which i (laughs) just think is insane uh Personally, though, at my school, I think they saw last year uh, when it first went pass fail, there were some students that maybe kind of took that as like, oh, pass fail, not that big of a deal. And we (laughs) did have a few more students fail than we normally do. So I think they are kind of coming in hot with us this year and making sure that we know it is still a serious exam. And uh, we've had a lot of information sessions over the summer. Uh, We go through the summer, our curriculum. So we had a lot of information sessions over the summer, as well as beginning in the fall uh, about building a schedule and things. As far as dedicated time, they did shorten it a little bit for us. It's around six weeks right now. Uh, It used to be a little bit longer but they've kind of pushed back our whole curriculum to then give us more time for step two on the back half. Because the whole idea with step one going past fail is that now step two is going to be that new numeric number that they're going to judge everything by. So our school wanted to give us kind of more room to study for that. Yeah. I, it was the in my in my opinion was the dumbest thing they could have done. Like let's make step one pass fail, but keep step two scored. It doesn't change anything. It just puts all the weight on step two instead of step one, and it doesn't allow now students who maybe struggled with step one to do well on step two to potentially make up for that, which is what I did. I I scored I don't know like just over fiftieth percentile for step one. And I scored 99th percentile on step two saying, hey, look, I I can do this. I just didn't do well on step one because I I didn't understand how to do well on step one. And and I I don't know. I it's it's like make them all pass fail. Just just go all pass fail and 
<laughs> let the residency yeah. directors figure out something else to do to uh, to pick students. Um, yeah. uh, Jonas, as, as you're looking at fourth year now um, and, and looking back over your, your three plus years as a medical student, what is the biggest tip that you could give anyone going through this process to, to survive? Uh, I think my biggest tip would be to find a good group of friends and look out for one another and help each other out uh, at all times. Uh, I'm lucky to have this group of friends. There's like six of us and we're always sharing resources. We're always sending each other reminders like uh, the ERAS supplementals do today. And every day in my group chat with my friends, it's like ERAS do Friday and it's like Monday, ERAS do Friday, Tuesday. And it's it's just small stuff like that that uh, I think will get you through the difficult times. Uh, I think uh, someone mentioned trauma bonding. <laughs> yep. Hate to use that, but it's uh, it's definitely when you when you go through difficult times together, it makes you stronger. And uh, having that good group of friends, that good group support, I think is uh, is something that is just uh, definitely underrated. So when you get to medical school, make some friends, and if those friends are Solid. Keep them. <laughs> Keep them. I'm wearing my collaboration, not competition shirt uh, on purpose. Uh, I'm a huge believer in it. Uh, and so it's it's definitely a, a, a big thing. Luke, what, what do you think your biggest tip would be to survive medical school? I, I'm not even talking about thriving. I'm just talking about surviving. Yeah, um, I think uh, it was already mentioned. Uh, keeping like a good fitness routine has been really helpful for me. Um, and then just taking everything like one day at a time, you know, you can't look too far ahead into the future. And I've said this, you know, since college, um, if you think about like, oh, I've got to do this, this four years of college and then four years of med school and then five years of residency and then two years of fellowship. It's like thinking about that all at once is just so overwhelming. You have yeah. to take it one step at a time. Um, another thing I would say is like get involved early. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to do a little bit at a time earlier than it is to like put it off. And then, you know, you get to the later, later part of school and you're like, okay, now I have to like do all this like crazy stuff to like, to get the things that I, that I want to get done, done. So, um, you know, start, start kind of working on research and volunteering and, um, you know, just shadowing and stuff like that early, uh, early on in school. Obviously, like don't overextend yourself because grades are important as well. But um, but getting involved early is a, is a big thing. Yeah, Stephen, for you, how how did you make the transition to to first year, and what what tips would you give to someone with that transition? Um, I think so. Firstly, I, I want to say that I, I forgot to give the disclaimer. My school, that, um, you know, made me do this. I'm not speaking for the United States Army, nor am I speaking for uses. Um, but I do want to give a big shout out to Blueprint. So my school is asynchronous and I studied with Blueprint. So the videos, the, the same way my school presents the, the information that we have to know for our exams is the exact same way it was on Blueprint with the videos. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice for transitioning. Just use Blueprint. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then secondly, just be financially ready. Aside from that, I think I still have a lot to learn. Um, but those are my advice. Just from my one month. What do you mean by financially ready? Um, so there's a lot of things that people don't tell you when you're applying to medical school. Firstly, yeah, I think it hits at first when the MCAT comes around and you realize how much the prep material is um, for the people that do use like 
blueprint for perhaps. Um, and then when the application comes around, there's the price of that. And then when you actually get into medical school, there's moving to a different city if you have to, getting an apartment. For people like me, I've pretty much never lived alone in this country. So that was a lie. I didn't realize how much rent was or how much groceries were, or, you know, just buying professional clothes. In my case, buying the uniforms. Yeah. Um, and those things add up. Yeah. But you get paid. You get paid to go to medical school. That's yeah, very you different. Eventually, paid eventually. Awesome. And Sarah, for you, what is what is your biggest survival tip? Sorry, I was coming off mute. It took a minute there. That's okay. Um, my biggest survival tip, uh, again, like people have said, exercise routine. Find uh, a good group, like I said earlier, Mm -hmm. in your class that you can relate to and kind of bond with over this experience. And I would say do not compare yourself to others. I know you say this all the time about the pre-med process, but that continues even in med school. You think that you get in and you're just going to be, you know, oh, I'm in med school. I, I don't have to compare myself to these people anymore, but it only gets worse you're constantly thinking about who is doing more research or who is involved in more things. Don't do that. You, everyone will get where they're meant to be uh, if you just kind of keep your head down in that sense and do what you're passionate about and uh, what you think is going to get you to where you want to be in the future. Yeah. Luke, what is what is something that uh, has surprised you about your your journey through medical school? Um, I would say probably just, uh, like I, sorry, there's some construction going on behind me. So if you can hear that, uh, you're good. But yeah, so, so, um, yeah, just, I, I think I expected it to be kind of just miserable all the time, you know, like we're just like buried (laughs) in work all the time. And it really hasn't been like that. You know, I've had plenty of time to do the things that I want to do. And in fact, you know, even when it's like crazy busy and like, you know, you don't feel like you have any time. I, I think it's really important to take the time for yourself uh, because, you know, if you're if you're not taking any time for yourself, you're probably not operating at like full full capacity. And so, and so you really are detracting from the amount of stuff that you can do. Whereas if you just, you know, take a little bit of time, take a day off or something, you know, you may may be able to function a little bit better going forward. So I, I would say, yeah, just like I, I thought it would be a lot more like every day. And, you know, it's definitely is a lot, but you get used to it and you kind of find ways to optimize, uh, the way that you, you approach things. So, yeah. Eunice, what, what's something you wish someone told you about, uh, about medical school, about this process? That it's not going to be as bad as you think. Um, so I didn't have the best MCAT score. And uh, I was really worried going into medical school. I thought, you know, like I was just going to get lost in the weeds. And like, there was a lot of self-doubt. But um, I think once you get into the groove of things and realize that you're there for a reason and an admissions committee looked at your application, interviewed you and selected you, that's enough reason for you to be there and for you to succeed. Um, So it's it's definitely challenging. It's not easy whatsoever. You're going to be push to your limit all the time, almost like every day, but know that you're there for a reason and you deserve to be there. 
and to keep working hard. Uh, I think it took it took me some time to get over that uh, that self doubt that I had going into medical school and the anxiety of medical school. And now it's just like any other day. It's like you wake up and let's go. Yeah. Wait until next year when you're an intern, the self-doubt comes back really fast. (laughs) Um, And and Luke, I'm sure you can potentially attest uh, the the self-doubt that that you may have had and that that I'm assuming a lot of us have uh, walking onto campus for first year going through those classes like did did I really get in here are they gonna are they gonna come find me in the classroom and go haha just kidding we uh, mistakenly accepted you it comes yes. right back clinical years where you're like in the hospital going I don't think I'm sh- I should be here I'm not ready for this yeah, so funny story. Um, when when we would get our grades uh, for things, we had these like exam numbers, these specific numbers that you know they would show have that number, and then they would have your grade or whatever next to it. And uh, mine was four hundred four, and I was like, "See, I knew it. I wasn't supposed to be here." You know, like the the not found error, not found code <laughs> or whatever that you see. Yep. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely still struggle with that to this day. Um, you know, just like. A little bit of like imposter syndrome like am I, i'm not like smart like those people because you know um like like it was it was already said you know like when you get here you don't stop like the comparisons don't go away and if anything they get worse because you're here with like the best of the best you know the the people whose applications are selected over everybody else and so you know if anything, the, it just amplifies, you know, you have people from like Ivy league schools and you're like, how I can't compete with that. But, um, you know, you just, like I said, take it one day at a time and just, um, just work hard. And I think if you work hard, you know, you, you can, uh, you can do well and, and eventually figure out that like, okay, I do belong here and, and, uh, and things are going to be all right. Yeah. Love it. Steven, if you could change one part of this process of, of, getting into med school, uh, and maybe being a medical student, what, what would you want to change? Um, so I'm going to speak for in general and then for my institution specifically in my experiences, um, in general, I coming from Nigeria and then just, I actually transferred over. So I didn't know a lot about the application process. It was through, um, the constant messages that I sent you on Instagram <laughs> and then some of my friends, um, that I eventually learned and, and fell upwards to where I'm at today. Um, so I wish, you know, there's more, more informative messages out there, just more general education. And then secondly, the little funny part of officer training school is, uh, a month before you go into, into medical school, you do this thing called officer training school to join the military and you do pushups at 4 30 AM for oh, a, yeah. a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember I those days. <laughs> yeah. Um, besides from that, I, I love every other part of it. It's, it's fun. Yeah. So, so your advice, uh, either do really well at pushups before deciding to do the military medical school or don't do the military medical school. <laughs> pretty, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Exercise at four thirty in the morning. Who's crazy enough to do that? Um, <laughs> uh, Sarah, what, what would you change about this process? About the process as a whole, I think we could change a lot <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, wish it wasn't such a financial burden to get to where we are all today. Um, Medical school, the price of medical education alone is obviously a lot, but outside of that, you talk about it often, you know, the price for 
just taking the MCAT alone and then materials to be able to do well on the MCAT, uh, it's it's kind of upsetting how uh, not accessible those things are. So that's one big thing I think I would change about the process of getting into medical school. And then as far as in medical school, this process, uh, there are talking about recently some changes to the match process. And I think that uh, if those changes happen, it could be moving in a good direction. Yeah, I'm interested to see. I, and this is not really a topic for today. Uh, <laughs> the, these changes to the match process, I, I don't know how much they'll help or not. Or I mean, that double match versus scramble, <laughs> slope, whatever. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what what happens with that. Um, <laughs> uh, Luke, what's what's one thing that uh, you would change about this process? Um, make uh, make step scored again. Honestly, if, uh, you know, for me, really, like, I do. Yeah, so I I I like have typically done well on standardized tests, and so you know, I feel like it's easier to distinguish yourself. Whereas now it's going to be a lot harder to like to you know now it's all on step two which is exactly the thing that they were trying to prevent was like putting pressure on one test score yeah and so now it's just shifted to step two which most people do well on anyway and then so it becomes even harder to distinguish yourself with step two um and i guess that's kind of just like not addressing the real problem which is like the, the standardized testing in general but um but it, for me in my current situation i i would that would uh would be something that I feel like would be beneficial, but yeah, I, I don't know, I guess, um, probably, um, the, uh, I guess comparison that it's like constant, you're constantly being compared and constantly like even, so we have these things that where you like do these clinical, uh, scenarios and then they, they're not graded, but you're like compared to your classmates. And so it's just like constant comparison, which I guess is, unavoidable in, in med school, but you know, it does add a little bit of stress. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Got it. Uh, we'll open it up to questions here in one second. Eunice, I think you're the only one, uh, that hasn't answered. Uh, what, what would you want to change about this process? I think the, uh, financial burden is pretty high. So, uh, I qualified for the AMC, uh, fee waivers. Yep. I don't know if the name has changed in the past uh, few years, but if your family meets a certain uh, threshold for an income below the uh, threshold, you get to apply to some schools for free and it's reduced MCAT. Um, I think it honestly should be totally free, but maybe repeat exams you can pay for. Uh, so it kind of maybe puts up the ante for the first one. So you don't have to pay for uh, the uh, exam in general, because it's, it's a lot of money. Yeah. I worked as a lifeguard and a camp counselor so I can afford to register for the MCAT. And uh, albeit I didn't do, do so great on it, but uh, I think I bounced back with uh, STEP and uh, Comlex. For uh, the STEP, even though if you don't have like a good MCAT score, that's honestly not a good predictor of how you can perform in medical school. Yep. Um, kind of like how you mentioned, uh, you were 50th percentile for STEP. I jumped up to 90s for STEP 1 and STEP 2 from a 50th Show percentile off. MCAT. So it's like... <laughs> Yeah, but it's but it's kind of just to go to show that yeah. like uh, even if you don't do so well in the MCAT, if you can't afford to take the MCAT and you take it once, yeah. you can still 
They're very, very different tests, uh, how, how they're structured and what they're testing. And yeah, so I, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the MCAT, how it's structured and, and how it tests you, but it's, uh, it's the devil we have to deal with at this point. So uh, let's open it up to some questions from the audience. Morgan, what do you think helped your med school applications stand out? I was specifically avoiding this question. Uh, um, uh, who, who wants to, to say potentially what, what helped them get into med school, do you think? Nobody has anything good. Eunice, go ahead. So the school that I attend uh, has a huge, huge focus on community outreach. Um, it's like, it's almost like it's expected, but it's not required, like actually mandatory. Everyone just does it. It's like your weekend off after an exam, everyone's just volunteering. It's like, well, what's going on here? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, it's starting off and then you kind of get into a rhythm. And uh, I, uh, I highlighted that in my uh, personal statement in my application, like I would volunteer at soup kitchens on Wednesdays for like two years and it was fun because I got to cook and listen to music with all the volunteers and just have a good time. And it's like, whatever you do, highlight it. It doesn't need to be, you don't need to be doing like groundbreaking research or whatever it may be. Just do something, stick with it and then show that you're passionate for it and how it affected you and how it made you a better person and how it prepares you for medical school in the future. I think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. Awesome. Next question. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, yeah. So for me, I like, I don't know that I had much that made me stand out. Like I played rugby, which was, I guess, different. And, um, and I was not in the college of natural sciences. So I wasn't like the standard, like biochem or anything like that. I did kinesiology. Um, but I think one thing that I did want to say is, is during college, I didn't have any research and I was really worried about that. And I thought like that I wouldn't get in anywhere because of it. And it didn't, it, it, I ended up still getting in, you know, and so just wanted to make that, uh, bring that up and, and kind of, uh, quell anybody's fears who's like worried about not having research. So shocker research isn't required. Um, awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, what else? McKenna, what should pre-meds look for in their future med schools that a lot of them don't even think about? Sarah, did, did you have anything you were looking for specifically when it came to picking med schools? Um, I think when it came down to the ones that I was accepted to, not necessarily when I was just making my list, I looked at how the students acted on student panels. A lot of the times on interview days, there's student panels. And I remember specifically one school that I was interviewing at, the people on the panel were just talking about how miserable their experience was <laughs> and how they cried all the time and things like that. So I was like, okay, maybe I don't necessarily want that at the top of my list. And then also I looked at the way curriculums were set up my school, we only have an exam every like four to six weeks at the end of a block, wow. which I really enjoy for the way I structure my studying, where some other schools have exams every week or every other week, which I just don't think would have worked for, it's a for lot. me personally. Yeah. Yeah. That seems more standard is, is the more frequent <laughs> exams. Uh, anyone else uh, on what you were looking for in a school? Yeah, I... um. 
I actually, so I wasn't necessarily like looking for this, but when I did my interview here, um, I really just like felt, felt like I got along really well with the, with the current students and that, that they all seemed like pretty happy and were talking very highly of the school, which most people at most schools will talk highly of it, but you can kind of tell when they're being, being like real about it. And when they're, um, you know, when they're, uh, like somebody that you would get along with. And I got like a really good feeling about this interview. And, uh, and so I think that's something you should like keep an eye out for is like how you feel in the interview and like whether you could see yourself living in the city, whether you could see, you know, yourself being uh, classmates alongside some of the people that you meet. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Next question. Kinsey, did any of you take gap years? What did you do during that time? Any gap year folks? Yeah, yeah I took a I took, oh, You can go ahead. No, you're good. Go ahead. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, I took a gap year. I was a medical assistant for an interventional spine doctor. Um, it was a great experience. I encourage everyone, if you're thinking about it, to take a gap year. I have real life experience for it. And I think it actually gave me almost an upper hand coming into some clinical experiences my first year because I was comfortable talking to patients. I was comfortable doing physical exams because I had done it for a year straight. With that said, I've said that to people and then they thought they absolutely had to take a gap year to get into med school. That is not the case either. I just think it's a good experience. So, Yeah. And, and did you do that and work as an MA because you thought you needed more clinical experience to, to make yourself more competitive? Or did you do it just to take a break from school? Why, why did you do that? I honestly had a decent amount of clinical experience before that. I needed to fund my application cycle. So I knew I was going to have to work that year. I also was taking my last MCAT attempt a little bit late in the year, um, before when I, if I were to pl apply straight out of school. So I knew I was going to have to take a gap year for the sake of the MCAT. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of just wanted a break and to live, uh, some real life experiences, pay bills, live on my own, make money to support the application cycle and support me. Yeah. And Luke, you, you mentioned you, you took a gap year as well. I did. So I was, uh, I took one gap year and I was a scribe at a neurology clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, so not luckily not in the emergency department. It was, it was a lot better hours and everything. So, but I thought it was a good experience just to kind of get that clinical experience that I didn't have to that point. Um, I think part of the reason was I felt like I needed the clinical experience and it would be like, look better on my application. And then part of the reason was, uh, I wanted to make sure like, okay, like I'm going to work in this clinic and I want to like see kind of what, what, uh, medicines like on a day-to-day -day basis and make sure like, cause I knew at the end of that year, if I still wanted to do med school, then I, it would be the, you know, the right choice for me. And so after that year I was like, all right, yep, this is, this is what I want to do. And so ended up doing it and, uh, happy that I did. So nice. All right. Next question. Deanna asks, where did you look websites to see what types of support and mental health students with kids underrepresented, et cetera, are available to the students at the schools you applied to? So a little more school resource, uh, research um, stuff. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen. 
Yeah, so I think um, for this one, the school's website is always like a good start, firstly. And I think that's that's a little obvious, but I, when I say like the school's website, I mean, dig deep. Like there should be no link left unclicked. <laughs> yeah. And that was my take um, going into it. And after that, then other websites that, I mean, they're kind of controversial, but I use Student Doctor Network and Reddit because you see students make threads about the school. Yep. So I wouldn't do that to find out like where they are in the application cycle, but I would do that to see what people's real experiences are at the institution. Those are some of the things that kind of helped me. Yeah, I love those school-specific threads, especially on Student Doctor Network. I know, shocker, I'm recommending Student Doctor Network. Uh, the med school side of it, though, not the pre-med side of it, go to the med school side um, and go to those school-specific threads where the students are there. But but always, always, always take everything with a grain of salt because complaints are almost always louder than the the praise. So people love to go on and complain and misery loves company. So there's always a lot of piling on on those threads. But just remember, that's just a, a small subset typically of of everyone at that school. Any other interesting ways of doing research from any of you? I would say... So, Eunice, go ahead. Sorry. Um. I would look at like their Facebook or Instagram as well. Uh, sometimes some schools have awesome social media uh, accounts, like whoever's running them, like is doing a great job and they highlight uh, student experiences and just like kind of the fun side of the school, like what students do, volunteering events, kind of mental health awareness. If they have like, my school brings in puppies every two weeks and like, like you pet puppies and like I did that all the time. It was awesome. So, I mean, it, it gets the job done, but I would check that out too. And obviously uh, check their websites out. And, uh, yeah. That's yeah. That's, that's awesome. Peppy, pe peppy, uh, puppy petting uh, for the win. Uh, Sarah, what were you going to add? I was going to say that when you're looking at the website, some of these things can kind of be hidden in different ways than you would expect as far as like resources and support for different types of students. I think it's important. Usually every website has a demographics of the current class and past classes. So see what makes up the class. If it's non-traditional students, if it's students from different backgrounds, I feel like that could tell a lot about a school as well. Awesome. Well, uh, Stephen, Sarah, Luke, Eunice, thank you so much for joining, sharing your uh, your your experiences going through medical school, being in medical school, the process of getting into medical school with everyone watching. I wish you the best of luck on, on your med school journey, your residency journey, uh, and your, your future career as a physician. So we will uh, end this session here. And we have another winner to announce, a winner of a Blueprint MCAT test pack, Ricky Iracheta from Texas A&M San Antonio. Texas A&M San Antonio. Welcome, welcome. Awesome. Congrats, Ricky. We'll reach out to you. Uh, we'll have actually Blueprint reach out to you um, with uh, uh, how to get that test pack from Blueprint MCAT. Uh, don't forget... Go enter to win. We still have more giveaways, premedgiveaway.com. 
And uh, don't forget MCATScholarship.com for uh, more details about Blueprint MCAT's $20,000 scholarship giveaway. You have to enter by October 31st. No purchase necessary um, at MCATScholarship.com. Just go fill out a form and they will announce a winner November 20th, 2022. All right. Got a couple more sessions left. Rocking and rolling. Hello, Courtney Lewis. Hi. Hello. What's going on? Not much. I was <laughs> excited to see Eunice. He was one of my students that I accepted back in the day, and he's yeah. going to kill it at the match. He's been so involved during med school. So if you don't yet, I would follow him on social media. He's an incredible person, an incredible student. So it was fun to hear an update from him because once they go in third and fourth year, you barely ever see them <laughs> because they're not on campus anymore, and it makes me so sad. Aww. So it was nice to hear an update from him. Yeah, that, that's awesome. It's, it's fun to see how much – um, how much kind of, uh, love and appreciation and just, just that, that bond that is formed with the admissions people and the the students. And I, I doubt it's that way at every school, but it's, it's so cool to see that, uh, from you at, at Burrell. Yeah. It, I think it was the best part of, of being in admissions is you got to see them when you were advising them or you met them at, you know, a health fair and then through their application, their interview, acceptance, getting onto campus, being really nervous, the first exam, and then just watching them thrive and grow and, you know, start all of these initiatives. Eunice started a whole Medical Explorers um, club for mentoring uh, middle school and high school kids in this rural part of the state, and he's doing incredible things. So even though he's not from New Mexico, he was getting himself plugged in. And so it's, it's really rewarding if I can tack myself onto their, you know, their little journey as a blip in it, but, um, their med students are amazing, all the stuff that they get done. And I'm excited to welcome another one. That's awesome. Yeah, let's go. All right. So please help me welcome Miss Jasmine Brown, who is a current third year, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about being underrepresented and underserved in medicine, which is a topic very near and dear to my heart and was part of my mission as I worked in admissions as well. She's a current third year at Perelman School of Medicine at University of Pennsylvania and an advocate for supporting minority students on their path to health and science. And so she also has an upcoming book called Twice as Hard, and we're excited to hear from her. So thanks for joining us. Yay, yay. Hello, Jasmine. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you all? I'm wonderful. Doing well. Um, So, Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Med student isn't uh, med student. Med school isn't hard enough. Let's write a book while we're doing it. <laughs> what the heck? Come on. Why? Yeah. Why did you write a book twice as hard to to go back and and look at the history of of black women physicians in this in this country? Well, definitely doing both at the same time. <laughs> presents with its own challenges but it started off when I was in grad school so I got the Rhodes Scholarship and I was able to complete a master's in history of medicine at Oxford and I was studying the barriers put in place to prevent Black women from entering medicine into the U.S. During that process 
I learned about a lot of Black women physicians that I had never heard of who had done incredible things. And I thought it was really important to share those stories with other people. Before that project, despite being pre-med, going through undergrad, being in the process of applying to med school, I had never met a Black woman physician. So I felt like sharing these stories could be really important for other people who came from similar position. And of course. Yeah, it went into med school, the writing process, but it was a fun process. I think it was nice looking at the history while I was in the present through that journey. Yeah, that that's amazing. So talk about uh, th- these barriers that you learned about that mm-hmm. it sounds like the, the specific language you use, and I'm sure you used it on purpose, was the barriers that were put in place um to to prevent or that prevented black women from from entering medicine what barriers were there why were they put in place and then i'm going to ask a follow up question after like what's what barriers are still there so mm. what what did you learn going through this process yeah so when in terms of why were they put in place medicine is just one part of society and society Racism and sexism is ingrained within our society, unfortunately. So medicine, a very sought after field with pretty high income on a national scale. I think just like many other fields with similar metrics of high high earning professions, trying to keep people of color and women out of those spaces. In terms of how they were prevented from entering, especially early on. So the first Black woman physician was Dr. Rebecca Crumpler. She started medical school in 1860 during the before the Civil War even started. And during that time, the things that we're discussing now, how do you get into medical school? Well, Black women and Black people and women in the say 1840s, 1850s, they're just explicitly told we will not let you in because you're Black or because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. Some of the early women were told to dress as men and that maybe then they will be allowed to attend the classes, but they couldn't get a degree. And yeah, so the, the things that we're talking about now and how to progress through the journey, those steps were what we're not allowed to do. So in the late 1800s, they're just explicitly told, like, we won't let you into medical school. Then in the 1900s, early 1900s, well, maybe we'll let you into medical school, but we won't let you do a residency, which is really important. (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, like a well-trained doctor. And then now it's more, we we could let you do residency and there still are limitations to the amount of people that are allowed to within the space. The number of black physicians today are approximately the same as the number of black physicians in 1910. Um, yeah. 5% is the number that, that I most recently saw. Is that about what, what you see? In terms of practice, maybe in terms of trainees, but for practicing Practicing physicians, my understanding is it's closer to two and a half to three percent. Okay. Um, yeah, but for the ones that are allowed to go to medical school, go to residency, now it's well, maybe we'll hire you for a faculty position, but there's far there's many there's few that are 
at the level of professor, few that are at the level of dean. So promotion mm-hmm. once you enter that workforce is yeah. a big hindrance now. What was the other question you had? Uh, uh, what are the the barriers in in place still potentially yeah. that that are okay. preventing right? Because because looking at those numbers, they haven't changed much, especially for for black men, uh, mm-hmm. which which I know your it's books actually, books about the women. Yeah, yeah. So I actually talk about that in the book. So okay. the way that it was in the eighteen hundreds and first half of the twentieth century, the nineteen hundreds there were many more black men. So one statistic that I can think of now in 1900, there were 160 black women physicians, 88,000 white men, white male physicians, 3,500 white female physicians and 1,800 black male physicians. So there were 10 times as many black men as there were black women in the field because of the combination of racism and sexism. It was around the 1960s when it started to switch, where the number of Black men entering the field basically plateaued while the number of Black women continued to rise. And my hypothesis on the cause of that, one of the major causes being mass incarceration, because that's also the time period that that started to happen. And so then This is not something that just starts when you go into medical school. This is a journey that begins in elementary school and middle school. Um, And so if they're even even before elementary school with uh, preschool and uh, daycare, universal daycare, universal preschool, uh, the lack of potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, now there are definitely fewer black men going into medicine. That's, I think, a large part of bigger societal issues that started off really in the 1960s. Yeah. Did you, as you were doing the research for this book and, and finding these women in, in history, these black women from, from history, did you gain any inspiration from them or hope from them that things have changed, are changing, will, will hopefully be better sometime, sometime soon? Mm. I definitely gain inspiration from them. So in terms of if things have changed, the reason that I started that project for my dissertation was based off of prejudice that I experienced and other Black students had experienced. So there's definitely still problems that persist to this day. Um, And so when I was looking at the barriers for my, my dissertation, I was disheartened at first to see how far it went back, how ubiquitous the problem was. But I was really inspired by how these Black women persisted and were able to succeed despite that. And definitely a lot of them, the earlier ones had challenges even greater than the challenges that I faced. So for instance, one of the Black women physicians, Dr. Edith Irby Jones, she was the first Black person to attend medical school in the South. It was in the 1950s, so about 100 years after Dr. Rebecca Crumpler graduated from medical school. She graduated from New England Female Medical College, which is in Boston, was in Boston, it shut down now. Um, and so Dr. Irby Jones was in medical school during Jim Crow like segregation. So 
she was the only Black student in her class. And because of segregation, she wasn't allowed to eat in the cafeteria with her classmates because they were all white. She wasn't allowed to use the women's bathroom because the white women in her class used the bathroom. So definitely thinking about the level of isolation that she experienced while going through this extremely difficult journey is just really powerful to me to see that she was able to do it. So as I'm going through my own journey and find my own challenges, it's like, well, they were able to succeed through it. So let me keep pushing in and make it through. What is your, and before I ask that question, uh, for, for everyone watching, if you have questions, we'll, we'll do a little Q&A um, here as well. This session is going to be a little bit shorter compared to the other ones. Uh, so ask your questions. Uh, what, um, what are you hoping this book does for, mm. for society, for the medical world? What, what are you hoping this book does? I have two major goals for it. So the first one is to provide that inspiration and this lineage of role models for other students of color that are thinking about medicine but don't have close connections to the medical field with family members or friends that they can talk to. So seeing people that they can identify who is who are able to persist despite their challenges I hope that that would inspire them to pursue their dream despite. So an example of a bear that I faced, like was told even at a young age that since I'm black, like I'm not smart enough to succeed in college or be like be successful in a career like medicine. And who's, who's telling you this? Where, where are these voices coming from? let's say classmates. So even yeah. as early as elementary school, other classmates telling me that, that I wouldn't be able to do this. And I'm a young child and so many hearing that so often. And then also not having, not being able to see that representation around me. Like I said, I never met a black woman physician. And so I've had doctors before. Um, so I'm hearing these voices telling me that because of something innate in who I am, that I cannot succeed. And then I'm not seeing the role models to combat that. Yeah. I had a supportive family who inspired me to keep pushing, even though none of them were in medicine. Mm -hmm. But there uh, could be plenty of people who are like turned away from that level of discouragement. So having those role models that they can just access through this book to hopefully inspire them Then on the other side, because there are still problems that persist within medicine, there are a lot of people who care about this, regardless of their background, who want to make a change, but may not know what to do or even what is a source of these problems. So by providing this historical precedent of these were some of the systematic changes that went into place that have prevented the continued diversification of medicine, that they will have more tools on how to change it. So for instance, I mentioned the statistic about the demographics within medicine from around 1910 to present day. That aligned with the Flexner Report that changed, led to the closing of many Black medical schools. And still today, the vast majority of Black physicians are trained at Black medical schools, but there's only three that are and around. So, 
okay, how is this? <sighs> how did this happen? There's not that many that are around, and there's still not enough of the predominantly white medical schools that are admitting yeah. black students. Like that's a systemic change that has had very long lasting effects. And even in Flexner's report, he said we that he felt like black physicians only needed to treat black patients and the fewer black doctors, the better. So yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's, it's interesting. I uh, just yesterday interviewed uh, Brian Elliott, who wrote a book, um, uh, researching a lot of our histories and traditions in uh, in medicine, and his mm-hmm. his book is called White Coat Ways. It's coming out mm-hmm. um, later this year as well. And one of the things that we talked about was the Flexner Report that came out in 1910. And it's very interesting. I didn't think at all about the the potential racist. Uh, uh, bias behind it or potential reasons uh, mm-hmm. behind it um, other than th- this big report and everyone can go Google Flexner report. It-, it was a big document, a big report that came out. That's like our medical education system is broken. We're, we're training a lot of doctors that are just going and buying a degree at, at like mm-hmm. the, the corner store. Um, and we need to close all that. We need to, to standardize medical education in this country um, this is the start of kind of the ACGME world, the whole accreditation mm-hmm. process. And now I'm talking to you and it's like a <laughs> lot of these black schools closed and I'm like, <sighs> and, and, and yeah. we talked yesterday about like very much, like, was there some, uh, the, I think the language I used was like mobbish behavior behind this mm-hmm. of like, Hey, we have the opportunity to make a lot of money here by accrediting schools and making sure that everyone who does everything does it our way and pays us to do it our way. And and Brian yesterday talking about it, he's like, of of course, definitely, because th- those were the times of of mm-hmm. like just no no rules and you're you're going and chasing money. Um, it didn't once cross my mind yesterday the the potential. Uh, uh, racism of of the report or the ramifications uh, mm-hmm. of it that closed lots of black medical schools as well. So, yeah, oh, history. Yeah, because it's like the individuals within medicine. We're not in a bubble. We're in the larger society. So at yeah. that time, it's 1910. Slavery was like. 50 years before. So this view that Black people can be property, how does that align with the view that Black people can be physicians? Like, Mm. um, And then who are the people that are put in power to make these decisions on how medicine changes? Yeah. So we we have a a book and a movie about Dr. Ben Carson, Gifted Hands. Mm -hmm. We we have a books and movies about hidden figures, the, the amazing women scientists at NASA. Um, who, who do you think out of all of the women that you researched is going to have a, a movie uh, created about her? Mm. There were a lot of really incredible women in the book. I think based off of just what can grab an audience attention. My guess would probably be Rebecca Crumpler, if anyone. Mm-hmm. 
But the sad thing about it, who was the first Black woman physician, but the sad thing about her is that, about that situation is she wasn't valued in the same way as the first Black male physician or the first white female physician. Um, There had already been a first Black physician and first woman physician. So there wasn't as much attention paid to that intersectionality. And there's not as much documentation that was preserved on her legacy, Mm. on what she did in her lifetime. A lot of what I was able to take, find out about her was from a book that she actually wrote herself. Um, Yeah, there's not even a photo of her that's been verified by historians. There wow. is a photo that will come up if you Google her name, but that photo is actually of the first black woman nurse. And just because I think people feel this need to have an image attached and not realizing the fact that they didn't think she was important enough to have an image of her when she was alive, even though there is an image of the first white woman physician is an image of the first black male physician who were alive before her were living before her um so it's not just about technology yeah there's not enough there's not as much about her so maybe there would be a movie about her but i'm not sure probably a lot of it would be fictional because there's not enough information on her actual life all right. Well, I, I think uh, I, Rachel's going to hate me for this. I, I think we need to option the rights to to her story somehow and and write a movie. Uh, and let's 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 go down that path. I think it'll be fun. Um, so, uh, I I think really at the end of the day, the the question that I have for you is. Um, what are you hoping to take forward, right? You're, you're a medical mm-hmm. student. You, you still have uh, medical school to finish, getting into residency. You wrote this book that's being published, which is amazing. Congrats on, on that process. I've written four books. It's a pain in the butt. <laughs> and I keep doing it to myself. It's a miserable process. Um, what are you hoping to take forward to continue to push for more equity here um mm. to to for for more diversity in this process to get these numbers up to represent our population the 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 black percentage in our population is about 14% and mm-hmm. if we're somewhere between 2 and a half and 5% like we're way off of that um mm-hmm. what what is what's your goals moving forward I'm definitely passionate about diversity and equity within medicine, within STEM, within the country, honestly. Um, And so I see this book as a platform for me to further that personal mission. And I definitely plan to do that throughout my career. I'm not sure exactly how that will take form, Mm -hmm. but it will be a part of my career. Yeah. And the title twice as hard. I, I can make some guesses twice meaning like woman, twice meaning black. Uh, it, it seems like my my guess would be that it's a lot more than twice as hard for for black women, especially those that you researched coming up to to be as successful as they were. Where, where did the, the title come from? Yeah, you you had some good guesses. In a way, it's a play on words. So I would say the phrase twice as hard for half as much is oftentimes said within the Black community, like you have to work twice as hard to get a certain position. And that's even known in research. Like there, when applicants, there was a study that, and I think there was probably multiple studies on this, applicants submitting 
for a job position and they changed same exact application, changed the name to make it sound white or black. And the application with the white sounding name almost always got the job over the black sounding name, even though they had the same exact credentials. So just how bias impacts people's decision making for progression within a career. Um, And then similarly, like what you said, that this intersectionality of race and gender. So it's not just being a black woman is not just the additive of those two challenges. It's something more complex. So kind of touching on that intersectionality as well. Yeah. Well, I'm excited you wrote the book. I'm excited to read it. Uh, We'll open up to some questions here from the audience. Karima asks, so inspiring. How did you go about crafting your disadvantage statement or speaking mm. on being an underrepresented in your application? Mm. Okay, so a big assumption there, <laughs> making an assumption that you marked yourself as disadvantaged. Um, mm. But but if you did, um, how did you talk about that? And then um, being an underrepresented in medicine applicant, how much did that play into your application? So it's been a little while. Are those two the same statement or are they different? So I, I think uh, I think the disadvantaged essay is, is obviously a distinct part of the AMCAS application. Uh, mm. And then I think the, the other question is just in general, how did you weave in being underrepresented? Mm. <laughs> or we can skip this question. I kind of forget because this yeah. was in... Like it's a while I ago. Applied, yeah, probably like four or more years ago. All right. Um we'll we'll skip this question. <laughs> Morgan, what was it like to study at Oxford and did the timing of the ap- academic calendar uh year there pose an issue with starting med school in the States? Oxford was a lot of fun. Um yeah, well, it was a great way to think in a different way. So I majored in neuroscience in undergrad. And then this is a, even though it's about medicine, it was a history program. And I really enjoyed being able to use my right brain where there's not always a clear answer, but just a lot of space for me to reflect and create my own answer. And also my community had friends from all over the world. And I, that really expanded just my perspective on life. I I really loved it. In terms of applying for med school, thankfully my academic schedule at Oxford was very flexible. A good portion of my degree was dedicated to writing my dissertation, which was about a hundred pages. So it was a lot of work. Um, So I was able to do all of my med school interviews before go- the the fall term at Oxford starts about a month or so later than the like fall semester here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I was able to go back after I had um, I came here, did all my med school application, med school interviews, and then went back to Oxford afterwards. I was there like a few weeks after the term had started, but I was just working on my dissertation here. Nice. Very cool. 
Uh, I think we have time for one more question. McKenna, how can your fellow med students be better allies? How can pre-med students do be better allies to others in the pre-med process? Mm. So allyship, any, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think that when someone is the target of some form of discrimination, it's oftentimes put on them to call it out, to speak to the pain that it causes them and try to work towards a like resolution. But a lot of times there's other people around and they may feel uncomfortable and just be silent because they don't know what to say. But it goes a long way for those allies to also speak up to, okay, this was uncomfortable. Like, can for the person who may have been initiating, let's say, the microaggression, mm-hmm. to that ally to address that person, and be like, well, what did you mean by this? Or why did you say this? As opposed to the person, the target of that being the person who has to speak up. And I think that goes a lot, long way for. For me, when that's happened, for me to feel less alone and that that person is willing to speak up for me in a situation that's uncomfortable as opposed to just in private, they'll, they'll talk to me about it. And it also makes me feel like I can talk to them about those difficult situations as opposed to if they're silent, sometimes will make me wonder, do they agree? Are they a part of it? Yeah. Yeah, silence speaks loudly. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, are are you familiar with Doctor Chanel Wilson? I don't know her. Oh, all right, got to connect you. What what is your future medical residency or, or medical specialty look like? Do you, do you have a thought yet? So I'm currently on my surgery rotation, and okay. it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thinking ophthalmology but okay. i also really like my psychiatry rotation so okay well it's up in the air if, if you're potentially <laughs> interested in urology dr chanel brown uh chanel wilson rather uh i had her on the pre-med years an episode that's coming out in a few weeks she uh similar to you underrepresented as a black woman physician mm-hmm. she's a urologist and mm-hmm. she started a program called urology unbound working to mm-hmm. increase the representation of underrepresented minorities in the field of urology so she mm-hmm. uh may be a great contact for you and i'd be happy to to put you in contact with her Jasmine yeah. Brown, thank you so much for joining us here at MappedCon. Congratulations on your book, Twice as Hard, The Stories of Black Women Who Fought to Become Physicians from the Civil War to the 21st Century. Still fighting to this day. Mm-hmm. Hopefully um, the fight gets easier and easier and we get a lot more equity, a lot more diversity in this field as we continue on. Agreed. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Awesome. All right, everyone. As we continue here, we have another winner, Stephanie Bogdan from the University of Ottawa. Oh, we're going to pay lots of money to ship some books to Canada. Oh, man. Um, that's all right. We are happy to pay it. Um, hopefully they they do you well, Stephanie. Um, we have two more sessions, two more sessions coming up. Um, one more big session talking about, uh, the finances of medical school and then 
a little closing where we talk about some more giveaways and just uh, a, a parting goodbye from the mapped team. Hello, Rachel. Hello. I'm going to introduce our friend Megan, I think. Yep, she's here. We bring her on camera. So yeah, we've got a couple sessions left. We're counting down towards the end, but we still have amazing info to share. Uh, we've been friends with Student Loan Planner for about three years now. So this is not Megan's first rodeo hanging out with me and Ryan on camera. And uh, you know, the thing is, there's no getting around how expensive med school is. Uh, so the big question I think a lot of pre-meds want to know is, is there a way out of this mountain of debt? And Megan Landris from Student Loan Planner has extensive experience guiding students along the journey of loan repayment. So thank you, Megan, for being here to offer all these great tips to our pre-health community. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to nerding out again today. Nerding yeah, out. Let's get mathy. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about interest rates. Um, hello, Megan. Thanks for hanging out with us again today. Uh, oh, no. This is not a fun topic for many people, um, yeah. how expensive medical school is. It's an important topic, though, and, and one that I hope mm -hmm. uh, we, can, we can help students learn something from so they don't make potentially super critical mistakes when it comes to paying back loans and making sure they're doing the best thing to reduce interest and all of that fun stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start with uh, why. why. Why is medical school so expensive? Do you know the answer to that? Uh, I don't know if I know the exact <laughs> answer to that, but I've got some ideas and it has to do with the fact that uh, you can borrow up to the cost of attendance yeah. to go to school. So colleges have no incentive to keep the cost down for people anymore. People are not generally paying for college out of pocket anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's some better statistics on that, but I think the reality is there's no incentive for schools to keep the cost down low. So why not charge more and make more money as a university? Yeah, that, that's the answer. <laughs> the government says, <laughs> we'll give you what you need. And so the school says, well, yeah. we need more. We need more and more and <laughs> right. more and more. Uh, the students will pay it back. That is the goal. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen a lot in the news lately about uh, student debt forgiveness. Now, mm -hmm. fortunately or unfortunately, we, we can argue the merits of, of how they drew the lines for student loan forgiveness. I think it was, yeah. uh, is it less than 75000 or less than something, 150000 whatever those numbers were for, for mm -hmm. who, who qualified. Um, mm -hmm. most doctors are not going to qualify for, for student loan forgiveness. It, what, where, uh, potentially are there options for, for physicians in the future that the people watching this future physicians to know yeah. that potentially there, there are some good options for them in the future paying back loans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there, I think there are a lot of good options still available. Uh, so the cancellation that's been in the news over the past couple of weeks is cancellation of up to 20000 which actually, if you have student loans right now and you've had them before the summer of this year, you could be eligible for this. You would just have to apply. If you're still in school, you very likely were under the income threshold. So there's two parts to the immediate cancellation right now. It's There's an income limitation, 125000 or less as a single person, 250000 or less as a, a household, as a married 
couple. Um, and they're going to go off of 2020 or 2021's taxes, whichever is the most recent on file, which is probably going to be 2021. And um, you can apply for that. You get up to 20000 if you ever received a Pell Grant, mm-hmm. which mostly are given in undergrad. So if you borrowed an undergrad, you had an extreme need at that time, you may have gotten a Pell Grant. You can tell if you did or not by logging into your studentaid.gov account, and it'll tell you what your grant to loan amount was. And um, so you get 20000 if you fall under those thresholds. You get 10000 if you did not have grants awarded to you. But you're very correct. Uh, for most physicians in practice, um, you're probably making well above the 125 threshold unless you're still in residency or fellowship. So what's what else is there? <laughs> what are their options are there? Um, public Service Loan Forgiveness, or PSLF for short, is a very real program. And I think it's very apl- applicable to, to physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily because uh, you can find yourself uh, very commonly, in, especially in residency, in a teaching hospital or in an, an eligible employer setting, where you have to be working at a nonprofit or a 501c3 or government. And you have to be doing that for 120 income-driven monthly payments. So it's about 10 years of consecutive work in public service. Mm -hmm. And a lot of physicians do tend to stay on at a hospital and they could continue to be eligible doing that. Or they go and work for the VA um, or a county hospital. So that's a very real opportunity, which we could dive into a little bit more if you'd like. Yeah. And then well, let's yeah. let, let's put that in in practical terms. the The key thing is nonprofit. I, I think is really the the key determining factor. Mm-hmm. Is every hospital nonprofit? Not every hospital, but many are. Many okay. of them are. So many mm-hmm. are. So let's let's go down in the weeds a little bit more mm-hmm. for residency programs. Mm-hmm. How tricky is it potentially like the hospital that you're working at is nonprofit, but your residency program is potentially a private residency program mm-hmm. by a for-profit? Is, is that a thing? It's not as common. It's actually more common for attending to find themselves in that position okay. where they're doing the work at a nonprofit hospital, but they're employed by a, either a contractor or a, a practice group. Okay. But um, it's very rare where residency doesn't qualify. Got it. Um, Okay. Yeah. So residents potentially are going to qualify as a nonprofit Mm -hmm. employee, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're working for a nonprofit. When I was, and maybe I I predated uh, this PSLF, when, when I was in medical school, our financial aid guy was like, just defer, d- defer, like whatever the, yeah. the term was. Like, just don't pay anything. It's fine. But potentially what you're saying is if I do income-based repayment, potentially maybe the best option, and I'll, I'll let you explain that. As, yeah. as a resident starting month one, and I'm doing a five-year surgical residency, and then a, a one-year fellowship potentially on top of that, at the same program, that's six years. If I'm doing the smallest payment possible, even though I'm making like fifty grand a year, maybe I'm going to do whatever I can to pay as little as possible, so that mm-hmm. when I get out of training, I basically only have four years left of loans to pay for, and then I'm done. 
if, if mm-hmm. as long as I again continue to work at a an eligible em- employer, right? Is it really yep. that simple? Yes, <laughs> it is that simple. So that's the benefit of of you know as soon as you graduate. You want to consolidate to combine the loans and waive the grace period because that's six months that won't count towards PSLF. And if you're already starting, you know, in July, which most folks do, they start residency in July, then you could start from day one getting credit towards PSLF. And a really good tip, too, is make sure you file taxes before you graduate, even if you didn't make any income last year. Because when you apply for the income-driven plan, it links back to the most recently filed tax return, and your payment can be as little as zero a yeah. month, and that counts that towards counts. PSLF. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like, it's like a, a loophole where I actually win for once. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> That's phenomenal. So, yeah, the money money is weird, right? Uh, we we mm-hmm. live in a society where it's kind of taboo to talk about. Um, and it, it can be frustrating. We, we have all of our classmates that are going through this process. Most of them are probably taking out loans and we're all stressing about it. Why do we not help each other out more about this? Why is this like these secrets not as well known? Yeah, I think finance is, you're totally right. I do think finances, personal finances are still just taboo to talk about. They're weird to talk about. Um, everybody's money situation is also very personal. Uh, I think behavioral finance is a very real part of financial planning to where, you know, somebody's numbers may seem similar, you know, like you and your, your colleagues numbers, your income in the future, your student loan balance might be similar, but your financial plan might be totally different because one of you might, you know, uh, just have different money ideas, different goals that you're trying to accomplish. Mm. So sometimes that makes it hard to talk about finances too, because things are just so personal to everybody and that's okay. Um, but I think, you know, the student loan conversation, I think, um, Not feeling alone is very helpful. We've seen in like the student loan planner community when it comes to loans and debt in general. Um, So we do have, there's a a couple Facebook groups. And if y'all, you know, listening to this, wanted to join in on these Facebook groups, just search PSLF eligible physicians um, or other uh, other student loan groups on Facebook. Um, I'd probably, uh, <laughs> I don't hate Reddit at all, but <laughs> probably avoid Reddit. It's not really a community, I wouldn't say, for like positivity. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes there's way more negativity. We agree. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but like there's a PSLF eligible physicians group right now that I was, I always check like every once in a while to see what's going on. And like, it's so empowering to see people like helping other people like, not just with student loans even too. Like it's, it's cool to see like those just conversations going to where you don't feel alone in whatever financial situation you're in. Um, so it's, you know, I think the conversation can be there if it makes you feel comfortable enough to talk about your finances, but, um, yeah, it's still, still kind of an odd thing. So (laughs) there, there has to be a downside to PSLF. If, if, my mm-hmm. job is to, again, the, the surgical residency example, if I'm spending six years in a nonprofit doing my training, am mm-hmm. I like avoiding a $400,000 salary to go make a $200,000 salary just so that I can pay off loans in four years versus 
maybe faster if if I just took the 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 difference between my salaries. What's the trade off there mm-hmm. for working at a quote unquote nonprofit? That's that's a common trade off where the salary is very different. Um, just naturally in a nonprofit setting or a government setting, you're going going to be probably making less than your counterparts working in private practice. Um, but I'll say first, there are practice areas which naturally just find themselves in public service. Um, like emergency medicine is easily found in a hospital setting just no matter what. So I think for those folks, it's a no-brainer. Like go for PSLF. There's That's probably just naturally where you would go anyway, so you might as well do the program. Um, for those where you could go either way, um, there is that that conversation you want to have. And I think I always kind of try to redirect the conversation too to what do you want to do? Like th- maybe set the money aside for a second because that's a, an important part of the decision. But also think about like, do you want the private practice job? Like, is that something that you think will bring you joy? Are you someone where you you could find yourself enjoying the the public service better or vice versa? Like, so think about that first. Like, what do you actually want? And the good news about physicians and what we typically see with the numbers is if there is a private sector job compared to a public sector job, generally in the same practice area, the private sector job will pay you pretty handsomely enough to maybe make it make sense to walk away from PSLF. It's very common where we crunch the numbers and it's like, yeah, I mean, if you want the private sector job, yeah, you're walking away from PSLF, but it's okay because you're going to be making X amount more and you can commit that to the loans and pay them off faster. Um, so that's, that's I think, a positive thing is that if private sector is where you'd rather go, mathematically, it could still definitely make sense, even though it feels weird to maybe walk away from the forgiveness word, you yeah. know, but it still could make sense. Yeah. And then there are practice areas, too, where it's just probably you're not probably going to find yourself in in public service later on. So those folks would probably want to maybe protect themselves with going on an income-driven plan anyways. There are some interest subsidies that could help keep the interest costs down while you're in residency and fellowship. But um, you know, maybe n- don't bank on PSLF if you're in one of those practice areas that won't find yourself there. Yeah. How, how convoluted is this process for someone to go, okay, I think I'm going to do PSLF, and then they get to a certain point and they're like, yeah, just kidding. I, I don't think I want to work in a, a nonprofit uh, arena. Mm-hmm. Are, are they are they like screwing themselves by starting one route and then changing? Is that are they technically like, do you go to the government like as, as a first year <laughs> resident to go? I declare myself PSLF and then they have to go redeclare like just kidding. Like, are, are these just terms we throw around? Like, what are the ramifications here? Yeah. So you definitely don't have to like alert the the Fed system that you decide not to do PSLF. That's not the case. Um, you just you stop turning in your paperwork for PSLF if it's no longer applicable. Um, but that's why. Uh, so what we typically recommend is deferment during residency is, I would say, almost never the answer. I'll, I won't say never because there's always like a couple of cases where I'm like, OK, maybe that made sense. <laughs> but um, almost deferment is is never the answer because interest will accrue at 100% of whatever that interest cost is per month making the balance more and more expensive. So, 
uh, we use, it's not really a loophole, but it is a strategic planning tool where you go on repay, which is one of the income-driven plans. It has the most generous interest subsidies or discounts on the accruing interest. Because even even when you're in residency, your payment's going to be still really low because you're making the lowest income you ever will, mm-hmm. um, which is helpful because you you need to make payments instead of being in deferment. So that keeps the payment low. But that also naturally would mean that the balance is still growing because you're not paying the interest. Well, repay will subsidize half of that accruing interest and waive it completely. So it makes sense regardless if you are someone who definitely is not doing PSLF but just can't afford thousands of dollars of of monthly payments right now because you're still in training, go on repay, take advantage of those subsidies, save as much as you, you know, and I suggest too, like if to take a foot in the door approach is what I call it, where if we're not sure about PSLF or thinking about private sector, we're not sure, then you know, go on repay, take advantage of the subsidies, and then save pretty aggressively, like throw money in a savings account. And then there will be some clarity in in the coming years on which direction you think you're going to go. And if you're going private practice, then you can take that savings, dump it on the balance and work it down from there. But um, if you decide not to do private practice, you also didn't shoot yourself in the foot by throwing a ton of money towards a loan that you're going to go ultimately get forgiven. So that helps I think calm calm the nerves on like I don't know what I want to do because <laughs> yeah. you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest mistake you think students make during this whole process? I think the biggest mistake is probably the deferment. You know, I think taking the deferment, not paying or not paying attention to their loans until after training. That is the biggest mistake I would say. Yeah. Um, so that's an easy answer. <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> Don't and, do it. <laughs> and do you think they're deferring based on bad advice or just based on on fear of being poor as a resident and not being able to <laughs> afford all their bills? I think historically it was probably bad advice. Maybe like you you had mentioned that you had gotten like mm-hmm. it wasn't well known that hey you could really strategically start PSLF now. So I think bad advice was originally the answer. Now it might be the fear of what the payment is because you're, you know, and the student loans in general are also just an intimidating thing. And sometimes, unfortunately, student loans are the first introduction to personal finance that people will have. And if you're looking at, you know, down the barrel of 400,000 of student loans, like that's a very overwhelming number. And you're thinking like logically, like, gosh, well, what is that payment going to be? And um, so you just ignore it. And I think income-driven repayment can be a really great option. It keeps the payment very reasonable during your your uh, re- your training years. Um, so I would say, you know, to overcome that is just really take a look at it early think, you know, hopefully this is a good conversation to have now to start thinking about it and then don't be so intimidated because it may not be as bad as you're thinking. Yeah. For our current audience right now, most of them being pre-med students, uh, hopefully they're going to undergrad for as cheap as possible so that they don't Mm -hmm. have loans on top of loans. What are things that they can do now, potentially, to help them with the transition to med school, with the loans they're taking into med school uh, for the future? Mm-hmm. 
So I think um, good news is when you go to to med school, the loans from undergrad do stay in in school deferment because you're continuing your education. So you won't be required to make payments on the loans. Um, now, let's see. You, this might sound funny me saying, but if you are going towards public service loan forgiveness, or you think that's the direction you might be going, which again you may not know, and that's okay. But if you're pretty confident that that might be a direction you're going in, in a weird way, it doesn't really matter how much the balance is at a certain point. Yeah. The balance of your loans, I mean, because whatever balance is left over after 120 income-driven payments, which the payments are just based off of income, not the balance, mm-hmm. whatever's left over is then forgiven. So if you have undergrad loans and you're concerned about that going into graduate school, well, it may not be as big of a deal as you're thinking because you may not be paying those off anyways. Yeah. Um, but if you're someone who might be looking at not not doing PSLF, um, some suggestions would be, you know, if you're still in undergrad, reducing the cost of, of going to school or how much you're borrowing as much as possible is is helpful. You know, having part-time jobs or working on campus, that can be helpful. And then while you're in school, if there's any way possible that you could be paying towards interest, that could, you know, help a little bit when it comes to repayment on the back end, like keeping the balance lower. Yeah. With with PSLF, uh, is that forgiven amount, is that considered income that is taxed? It is not. So that's good. And that's never been the case. So no one will ever have to pay income taxes for for PSLF, thankfully. Nice. All right. Bonus. Someone's (laughs) looking out for us, wealthy doctors. (laughs) Thank you. Um, What what is the the landscape of the the future of this uh, with... I, I I know Biden is like let's give let's forgive it all <laughs> like, let's <laughs> let's forgive it all. Um, yeah. I, do you do you see a future where medical school is free free free? I don't know. Uh, what yeah. what does that look like? Gosh, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> um, I I would pessim. I'm always pessimistic when it comes about like student loan legislation because yeah. I like to guard my heart. But uh, <laughs> I think probably not. I don't think it's sustainable. But I think there's got to be some kind of reform when it comes to the cost of attendance. Yeah. So that's going to start on the front end, like with, you know, how can schools charge? Like how can they justify charging X amount? So there might be some more tightening there, which I think could be a good thing. Um but I also know there's more talks of more generous income-driven plans that could come down the pipeline in the future. So maybe even cheaper income-driven payments than what we already have right now. Um, so I think things are moving in a positive direction. I don't think things are going to get worse. Yeah. It's just a matter of like what what actually gets implemented in the next couple of years. Yeah. Not, not very likely for physicians, hopefully. Um, bankruptcy is, is one of the big things that mm-hmm. for some reason, student loans are not, uh, uh whatever yeah. the, the term is forgiven, uh, during bankruptcy. And I know a lot of people with this loan forgiveness, um, that, that Biden just, uh, uh, signed recently, a lot of people are like, that doesn't really get at the heart of the issues. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take the free money. Like, it seems like bankruptcy and, and, getting rid of student loans is the easiest kind of thing to say 
look, everything else is forgiven in a bankruptcy. Why not student <laughs> loans? It, it, yeah. Is that coming? Maybe? Again, I, I want you to have a crystal ball here. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> so I think there have been some really positive movements in that direction. There have been some interesting cases that have been successful with mm -hmm. bankruptcy. I think it's hard for federal student loans, especially to be considered as part of a bankruptcy process because you have to prove undue hardship. Yeah. And undue hardship means there's just no way you can pay on your student loans and provide for your family and, and you know, provide for the necessities. And that's hard to say you can't do if you have income driven plans where the payment can be as little as zero. Yeah. So, you know, if your payment can be as little as zero, why include that in a bankruptcy proceeding. Why not just have the payment be zero until you can pay later? So it's, I guess, <laughs> Darn logic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, it. But that, I think positive changes are to come there. Yeah. And we've, we have already seen some cases that are pushing that way. So to yeah. be determined. <laughs> so, but before we jump into some Q and A from the students, and again, if, if you're watching and you have questions, ask them now, we'll, we'll pull them up. Um, the the big thing that that I want students to to try to take away from this is just not being so scared to ask questions. Mm -hmm. I think as as you mentioned, right, staring down the barrel of four hundred thousand dollars of student debt, a lot of people will just bury their head in the sand and go, "If I don't look at it, then it's not there." Um, but then they're not making the right choices. So mm -hmm. let's let's kind of walk through potentially. Uh, the the four years of medical school, what students should be doing every year to make sure they're they're staying on top of the things that they should be staying on top of, so they don't make mistakes and screw themselves in the end. Mm -hmm. Well, step one, I would say, is definitely complete FAFSA each year on time. You want to make sure you have access to federal funding, federal student loans. We've talked a lot about federal loans today because. They are the most accessible, the most flexible. They're the only loans that are eligible for these forgiveness programs we're talking about. So you don't want to get yourself in a position where you miss the deadline and you can no longer borrow federal loans and you have to go private because that's a regular debt that you have to pay off. There's nothing interesting about private loans. They're far less flexible. So that's one. Definitely make sure you complete FAFSA on time. I would say I typically recommend if you're you're going to graduate school, borrowing federal is is probably the way to go because you can always privatize your loans later, reduce, you know, take them to a private company, reduce the interest costs later on. You can't borrow private and turn them into federal though. So I think borrowing federal from the get-go just locks in way more options when it comes to repayment. Um, so those are maybe the two big things. And you'll have two different types of federal loans you can borrow, unsubsidized loans. And that has a cap of $20,500 for the year. If you are meeting that, which you likely will going to med school, uh, where there's still more costs to come, then <laughs> you can spill over into what's called graduate plus loans. And graduate plus loans are similar. They have the same repayment options post-graduation. But those are the two loan types you'd want to be borrowing. Stay away. I would probably generally recommend stay away from private private borrowing because you could always refinance later. Yeah. 
I, I guess our, our team wants to start asking questions, so let's go ahead and bring up sure. some questions. Um, <laughs> Sabri asks, when is the best time to apply for PSLF? Great question. So you would want to submit what's called an employment certification form uh, once a year, once you start working. So this will be after graduation. Once you have that public service job, you'll submit this employment certification form to just continue to confirm that you're still working in public service. They count up your payments and that's the best thing to do to stay on top of it. Is is that something like month one you should do or just any time within that year? Is there a, a, a rush to do it? Not necessarily a rush unless there's a concern about the employer being eligible. Like if you're not sure if they're eligible, you'd want to do it like as soon as possible. But it's always a retroactive document. So it'll always look back at your payment history. Okay. So you could do it within the first year and that's okay. totally fine. What about at year 10? I go, okay, I've been at the same place for 10 years. Can I submit a document then and go uh, mm-hmm. retroactive? Yes, you can. Okay. Uh, I would recommend doing it more frequently <laughs> just to catch any issues before, like, you know, sooner rather than later. Okay. <laughs> but so it's just yes, a safer, that could happen. <laughs> safer process. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So, so someone maybe who just doesn't know, uh, three years into their residency, someone's like, you, what do you mean you haven't submitted that? That person mm-hmm. isn't kind of left out. They, they can still submit. Yes, That's they good. can. Thankfully. That's mm-hmm. good. Assuming also they've been making payments. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even so zero, that's the key. zero dollar payments. Yeah. You had to be on re- in repayment on an income driven plan. Yeah. But as long as that was true, you'll get your payments counted up. What What does mm-hmm. a zero dollar payment look like? Do you just get an invoice that says you, you owe zero dollars? <laughs> Thank you. Literally. Yeah. So there's nothing you have to actively do. It locks itself in for 12 months and then you update that every 12 months. So they send you out a reminder like, hey, it's time to recertify your income. And then you just update your income that way. Uh, But yeah, you you don't have to actively do anything if you have a zero dollar payment until you have to renew. So maybe you know the answer, maybe not. The, the average salary nowadays for, for residency, I don't know what it is, 50, 55,000, whatever the number is. If someone's making $55,000 a year as a resident, what would that income-based payment look like? Yeah, I think so. What I've been seeing lately has been like 65 to 70 on average for residency salary. Okay. But I could tell you right now what it would be. It'd probably be around 200 if you had a full year of that income reporting, which usually you don't. Okay. So if, if you were making 50000 it would be about $181. Okay. If you were making about $70,000, it'd be about three fifty a month. So so not horrible. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. could make or break a budget, um, but but definitely mm-hmm. doable if, if someone is really intentional with their budgeting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Go check out. YNAB. <laughs> I've been playing with YNAB <laughs> lately. It's fun. It's crazy. Oh, I love YNAB. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Morgan asks, is there a way to search for loans with lower interest rates? Yeah, that's the problem, right? Federal loans are kind of locked in at, at one rate. You can go shopping, but then you lose all the benefits of federal loans. You've got it. Yep. So there's no way to reduce a federal student loan interest rate. Um, they are what they are. They're based off of the U.S. Treasury rate. Um, you could go and search private student loans, but exactly like you said, you, you risk not having access to any of the federal flexibilities. Mm -hmm. So 
if you're looking for lower interest rates after graduating, after training, because you're paying the loans off, absolutely. You can go and refinance Mm -hmm. with another private student loan company that refinances student loans. And the goal there is to try to get the interest rate as low as possible. Yeah. So if, if I were doing PSLF, I would not want to refinance at any point with a private uh, company, correct? Correct. Yeah. The interest rate does not matter if you're going towards public service loan forgiveness because you're not paying off the balance. You're just just trying to make the required (laughs) minimum payments until you get to 120. (laughs) Yeah. Just uh, as as I went through my military officer training, uh, one of our our um, colleagues going through training as well as everyone can hug a bear for eight seconds. Just hug that bear and keep keep hugging it. Um, it may claw yeah. you a little bit. Just hug it. Um, that's, that's all you're doing. Uh, just trying to survive that 120 payments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Like <laughs> Omar, how can I financially prepare for med school as a pre-med? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a good question. So I think, um, you know, making sure you're getting your, your aid uh, organized. So each school has a cost of attendance that they will publicly post each year that will itemize what their, uh, what their tuition costs are, what their expenses are for like actually going to school. And they also have line items for living expenses for, uh, so like housing, for example, eating like food, uh, transportation and health insurance. Usually they will itemize that those, uh, expenses as, Uh, an idea of how much you should be spending. And that's how much they base how much they're going to award you on for student loans. So a great way to prepare for med school is to take a look at what they are kind of prescribing when it comes to a budget for those areas and stick within it. Because you can always only borrow up to that amount. Mm -hmm. And if you run out of that amount, like midway through your academic period, you're going to be in a bad spot. So you want to make sure that you put together a budget in advance with that. Yeah. Uh, one of the the biggest pieces of advice that I heard and, and I struggled with during medical school, uh, I had a lot of credit card debt. And so as mm-hmm. much as possible, mm-hmm. try to pay off your credit card debt, try to Beforehand, not have yeah. a car loan, all of those things, because the school mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily care about those things. And, and the cost yeah. of attendance, the, the budget that they put together uh, doesn't assume any of that extra debt that you <laughs> right. may be paying, unfortunately. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. so fun. Aliyah, are federal loans typically enough to cover the cost of medical school? Yeah. Right, they typically two. are. Yeah, they typically are. So you usually don't have an issue with, with having enough funding. Um, it's very rare where that that would be the case. And if it is the case, if you're looking at your budget and you're you're thinking it's going to be really tight with what they're offering you, you might want to look at other, uh, so like other living arrangements, um, finding a roommate, you know, things that can cut your costs down. You can petition for more aid if it's uh, if you can prove that it's necessary. So that is an option, but it's it's just very rare where you would need to do that. Yeah. Um, the the one thing that that I've seen is typically for non traditional students, they have a family to support, kids and daycare and all that stuff. Typically, what I've seen is they go to the school to say, hey, can you adjust my cost of a living based on who I am and based on my needs? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's how they've gone. Is that typically what, what you see? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that's what, what you would do. And that's 
petition is kind of like a, an aggressive word maybe, but that is what you're asking. You know, you're just asking for more money and here's the reasons why X, Y, Z, these are my expenses. Yeah. This is, you know, I cannot, you know, reduce them any further. Help me with increasing how much aid I can have. Yeah. Yeah. My Lamborghini uh, lease (laughs) is is not going to be covered. I need help here. It's terrible. Terrible. All right. Uh, Tejas, suppose I am in public service, but also make money through side hustle. What's the impact? That's the fun thing with public service loan forgiveness, right? Is it's not income based. It's who you're working for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as long as your public service job is still full time, you can make as much money as you want elsewhere. And the impact it'll have is just on your income driven payment. But there's no limitations on how many jobs you can have or other income sources at all, which is great. Yeah. So that's the impact is because you're doing income based repayment typically, probably, uh, you'll just have to pay a little (laughs) bit more. Mm -hmm. Erica, does utilizing PLSF affect your credit? Great question. So yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, it does show up on your credit. So student loans in general will show up on your credit as an installment loan, Mm -hmm. which means you have a certain amount that you borrowed and you have a certain amount per month you pay back. Uh, it's not like a credit card where there's like a line of credit you have and you decide how much of it each month you spend. So um, the biggest impact to credit is just making sure that you're making payments on time and in full. So if your monthly payment is $250, make sure you're making that on time and in full. And that'll have a very positive impact on your credit. Um, sometimes when I get this question, another like side question is, you know, my goodness, well, if I've got a very large student loan balance, really low payments, my debt to income ratio is not going to look good for being able to buy a house. And what's positive there is mortgage lenders. So if you're thinking about buying a house post, you know, schooling, maybe in residency or going into attending, you don't have to worry about how the student loans are going to affect you in maybe the natural way you would think because mortgage companies care more about the monthly payment obligation. Mm. So your income driven payment, they don't really care about the balance. So as long as your monthly payment against your monthly gross income, is it within a healthy standard for them, then you'll, you'll be able to still purchase a home. So it oftentimes does not affect people from not, you know, not being able to buy a house. That's not the case, thankfully. Yeah. And, and, Luckily, there are very commonly doctor loans for for houses mm-hmm. and stuff where they know that you're, you're probably going to be making a lot of money and they want your business uh, now and in yeah. the future. Yep. <laughs> so that's good. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Nina asks, do you recommend consolidating your loans from undergrad, grad, and med school? I would say yes to this. And consolidation, when I say this term, I mean just combining them all into the federal system post-graduation. You cannot do this until you're done with school um, because the the loans are still in that in-school deferment. But consolidation can really simplify your loan situation. Uh, So a great example of this is, you know, you will have to borrow multiple loans per academic period, likely. So when you graduate, you'll probably have a laundry list of loans and the PSLF payment count is applied to each individual loan. So in theory, you make payments, they're going to be spread between the loans by the loan servicer. But 
that's, you know, let's say 12 loans you have to make sure has the right payment count, where if you consolidate, you would just have one direct consolidation loan with less to track. So I say simplicity is very helpful and important when it comes to PSLF. So I think long answer uh, to to the more direct point, yes, I would yeah. say consolidate. <laughs> Do they, I, I'm assuming they all have to be federal loans to be able to consolidate in that way. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't mix the private and the federal. Okay. Got it. Great questions. Matt, would having an existing home loan coupled with additional debt for med school make me less favorable for any student loans? Interesting question. Yeah. So yeah. existing loans and then and then if if you can talk about if you know um credit worthiness uh with medical school loans as well. Mm-hmm. So likely not, this won't come into play because when you are borrowing federal student loans, they check your credit, but they're really just checking to make sure you don't have an active bankruptcy or any federal or government loans that are in default status because that's a, a no-go for them. They say, well, if they can't pay that one. What, what makes us think they're going to pay these student loans? So that stuff has to be fixed before you can borrow federal student loans. Um, but other than that, the, the home loan doesn't come into play. It's, it's not like private loans. If you were borrowing private student loans, then yes, those things would absolutely come into play because they care about how much of your monthly income is going towards other obligations where with federal loans, since they're income driven, they, they don't care as much, I guess (laughs) is the answer there. So, um, doesn't hurt you. Um, doesn't, doesn't hurt your chances at all. Nice. And then the, the credit credit worthiness sounds like active bankruptcy could be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had mentioned uh, something else I forget. Like uh, defaulted government loans. Oh, so you, very, you have already defaulted. Like, yeah. Bad stuff. Yeah. Aggressive stuff. So yeah. just don't be in those situations. <laughs> Bad stuff. All right. Good question, Matt. I think we have time for one more question. Lady1978. Jay, what if your undergrad loans were forgiven due to disability? You've recovered and accepted to medical school. Would your prior loan forgiveness somehow prevent you from getting a med school loan? Very interesting. Very unique. That's a great situation. question. I've never gotten that question before. Yeah. Um, I would assume no, um, because you don't have to prove that you're not currently disabled to borrow a student loan. Um, so I don't think it will cause you any issue. But if it does, I would love you to to email me at help at studentloanplanner.com and let me know because we would yeah. love to to figure that out with you. <laughs> That's an interesting, interesting situation. Um, so Megan Landris from studentloanplanner.com. Thank you so much for joining us here at MappedCon, wrapping up the day um, with tons of great advice to hopefully set people up for success for their financial future. It's such an important topic that we just don't talk enough about. And so I'm glad you were able to come on and, and share your wisdom with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And hopefully this uh, helps just relieve some of the like maybe angst about the borrowing side of things. And you know, if this is what you want to do with your career, I'd, I'd say go for it and you know, the planning, the student loan situation, you'll, you'll be able to have a plan or a game plan for them. Yeah. Um, but thanks for having me so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. You <laughs> are welcome. Plan the work, work the plan, as they say, such an important thing. Uh, again, studentloanplanner.com. Go check out Megan and the rest of her team, what they're doing over there.
All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the end of MappedCon. We still have another session to go. Um, a little mini session where we bring on the team, the map team. Rachel Grubbs, hello, hello. I'm here, hello. Verinia Granham, hello, hello. 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 Courtney Lewis, hello, hello. And we're waiting on Scott to join us as he... Uh, uh, comes joins us back on um, back on the stream. We did it! We did it, everyone! Woo-hoo. We made it through MapsCon twenty two. Can I just share a comment that came through earlier? No. Yeah. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> I already did. Erica says, "Just want to show appreciation for the Map team for an awesome conference. I know it's not over yet, but I want to make sure you're given <laughs> your flowers. Thank you, thank you, Erica. Thank you for sharing that, Bernia." Um, yeah, uh, the team, uh, behind the scenes, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes <laughs> right now with Verissa and Veronica and Tyra and, uh, Kara and, uh, McKenna and Carly. Uh, I think I got most of them. Um, amazing, amazing job. Everyone putting this together and, and making today go as smoothly as it did. Hooray. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah. What do we have left? We have some giveaways to announce. Yeah. Uh, so we've got lots of prizes and winners. Let me pull that up on the screen here. Do, do, do. All right. So you guys saw all the amazing prizes. We've been giving some out all day. We're ready to announce all the winners uh, as soon as I can find the page that has them all. There we go. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I'm going to have people take turns reading this so I don't have to read uh, <laughs> 60 names in a row. But for uh, the pre-med playbook, uh, Radina Khalid from Rice University, Cassie Patton from Middle Tennessee State, Caitlin Ha from Chapman, Ari Mor- Morfiz Gonzalez from University of Portland, Stephanie Bogdan from University of Ottawa, Lynn from Hunter College, Nicole Horn from Grand Valley State University, You've all won sets of pre-med playbooks. Woo-hoo! We're gonna e- we're gonna email you. You're gonna email us back. We're gonna ship them to you. Yes. Bernie, will you take the second column? Sure. <laughs> Wendy Perez from UCLA. Adara Cross from University of Illinois at UIC. Fiona Barbagallo from University of Vermont. Emma Thomas from Hofstra University. Hofstra. Hi Emma. <laughs> cheating. Rachel- cheating. <laughs> Rachel Virtue from Cabrini University. Ahmad Sheikh from SHU, Samin Abdullahi from GSU, and Pranav Prabhu from NJIT. Woohoo! Congratulations. Right. Get some books. You guys have, yeah, hundreds of pages of Dr. Gray's thoughts coming <laughs> your way. <laughs> yes, hopefully they make sense. <laughs> All right. 10 sets of Blueprint practice exams. Final reminder for you that Blueprint is our sponsor. So they are largely why it is free this year. And also, in addition to this raffle that they're participating in, they're doing a 20K scholarship. You can sign up for that at uh, mcatscholarship.com. So who is winning sets of MCAT practice exams? We've got Abimbola Akinili. I'm so sorry. I wish I'd emailed you to ask for help. Um, From University of Massachusetts. Julia Southerd from Georgetown, Mary Wallace from University of Colorado, Denver, Laura Miranda from Sonoma State University, Ricky Iracheta from Texas A&M. Courtney, you want to take the second column? 
muted. You are muted. No, she's, yeah. Well, she's, there she goes. There we go. Am I muted? Okay. Now. now you're good. <laughs> Thank you. Olivia Lawson from University of Tennessee, Hannah Choi from Constra Costa Medical Career College, Jean St. Pierre from UTSA, Shani Adest from Yeshiva University, and Caitlin Brown from Appalachian State University. Congrats. No Gators. Huh? No Gators won. Come on. This is rigged. <laughs> yeah. Yet. <laughs> All right. Yet. Mapped out pro subscriptions. Ryan, take a turn. You've got equalized. Miguel Martel from University of Puerto Rico. Stephanie Bogdan from University of Ottawa. She won twice? Uh-oh. Uh, Jane, Might have to fix that. Jane, <laughs> uh, maybe, I don't know. Jane Choi from Nowhere. <laughs> Catherine Miller from Drexel University. Ashley Taylor from Cal State Northridge. Adrian Gonzalez from Western University of Health Sciences. Mackenzie Dunn from Grand Valley State University. James uh, Abagoye uh, from UCLA. Kimberly Zuffa. Zuffa from Arizona State. The Sun Devils. That was the school I wanted to go to growing up. Uh, and Jeanette Doblado from Rutgers University. All right. So you guys all get a year of Mapped Up Pro. So that's all the wonderful stuff that's in Mapped Up, which is free, plus chat advising with we who are on camera now so you can message us your questions anytime and some cool new features that are coming very soon that are yet to be announced i love it i love it some good new stuff we're working on so uh some of you apparently want to get free advising with this guy down in the corner i don't know (laughs) i don't know but i see a university of florida on there so i'm happy I get to speak that, to Anusha. I mean, randomgenerator.org, man. We had nothing to do with it. Yeah, go ahead and read us, Ryan. Anusha Patel from University of Florida, Karima Mohammed Poe from Georgia State University, and Kiara Bevins from ODU, Old Dominion. And then Blueprint MCAT Live Online course. Rachel, you want to read that one? Yeah, Audrey, I'm going to say Walsh Check from Florida State University. Boo. Uh, Boo. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Audrey, even though you're not from Ryan's favorite school, you're still a winner. <laughs> All right. That is the entire raffle. I know that went quickly. One reminder is there's a recording. The second reminder is if you won, we're emailing you. So definitely be in. Check, check for your email. If you've been getting the emails we've been sending about registering for MAPS, then you know that you are good to hear from us. So it'll come from uh, info at map.com. Got a few minutes left. Let's talk about today. More importantly, let's talk about next year. Oh, yeah. Next year. Stay tuned. Uh, MAPSCon 2023, live in person. We are hoping for 1,000 people in baltimore october 6th through 8th it's friday through sunday um so mark your calendars our registration and all that stuff will be up we're shooting for october 1st so right around the corner stay tuned for that um take the the fun of today put it in person magic will happen uh 2023 october 6th through 8th in baltimore so Save the date. So what do you guys want to hear 
or C next year live and in person? What was your favorite part of today? What what do you what do you want again? What do you want more of? Yeah, that is the question. Um, Courtney, what what was your favorite part of today? Honestly, I liked attending all of the sessions in the background because it's good to hear the updates from all of the experts in their different fields to make sure that I'm giving accurate information. So I liked all the different speakers and kind of the the breadth of topics that we covered. I thought it was great. Awesome. 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 Yeah. Hey, and everyone who's watching right now, um, let us know what your favorite part of today was. Uh, let us know. Jay and Med says, I'll be there um, at MapCon <laughs> in 2023. He's from Maryland. Um, so, so excited. Uh, Verinia, what was your favorite part of, of today? I enjoyed every session thoroughly, um, but I really enjoyed hearing from Jasmine Brown. Yeah. And I really enjoyed um, getting to know her story. And I'm going to pick up her book. Yes. I, I'm going to go get a copy of her book. So that was awesome. So excited. Definitely. Yeah. We'll, we'll have her book. Yeah. Um, uh, schedule, maybe I stayed on the whole time, but for anyone who can only be on for a certain time. Yeah, I mean, we had the schedule. It was rocking and rolling. So, uh, Rachel, your favorite part? Yeah, I was just thinking that I think my vote would also be for uh, for Ms. Brown, for Jasmine. Um, I, I She was only able to give us 30 minutes today. She just has a very busy schedule, as most people in the third year of med student school do. But so it was so substantial and yet a little mm -hmm. more compressed. And one of my thoughts was, one, I want to have her back. And two, she's got a book that's coming out in January. We should have her back in time to have a podcast hit for her pre-order deadline. Mm -hmm. uh, go pre-order her book, friends. Yeah, that would be good. Well, um, let's, uh, let's say goodbye. Let's say goodbye to everyone. Um, for all of you who stayed the whole time, bless you. <laughs> uh, I, I'm thankful for you to be here hanging out with us today. I'll be interested to see uh, as the numbers come in. I, I know we had consistently over 300 people watching live, but usually that means people are hopping in and out. So mm -hmm. I, I'm guessing uh, several thousand people over the course of the day today, and then hopefully the many thousand that will will watch in the coming weeks. Um, I, I just, I, I love having the ability to touch so many lives through everything that we do. And uh, from me to the MAPT team, thank you for uh, being a part of this journey uh, and helping out so much. Yeah. Glad to be here. It's always fun. So Super rewarding. It, whoever just put as soon as a lie is over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying that. to type too quickly. I'll just Who's answer lying? it verbally. It's all lying. Lying. The lie is not over because the lie never started. It was meant to be live. Oh, um, okay. Somebody, yeah. I think it was Norma, I'm trying to find it, asked, how do I get the recording? Yeah. So this link that you're watching right now is going to be the recording link. So when we're done going live, YouTube will work its little process magic. And then the link will be the same link. It'll just show you the recording. Yep. And then as we uh, process these, we, we have, again, the team behind the scenes. We'll chop them up and, and make smaller clips so that you can watch very specific uh, sessions that you want to watch without needing to kind of scrub through the whole thing. So on that note, thank you, everyone, for coming to MappedCon 2022. Ooh. 
And we hope to see you in Baltimore next year for MapsCon 2023. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. Bye-bye. Bye. This is MedEd Media.